everyone. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am your host, Jim Laskowski. And well, you know what? It's been quite a while since I've done an official director-centric episode because we're, we're going all the way back to, geez, maybe even March? Wow. Because I've been turning out bonus episodes so much lately. And also, just as a heads up up front, contributing guest host Bill Ackerman will be putting out two episodes in a row over the next six weeks or so. And I can't wait for, for his work to finally come out because uh, it's going to be quite special. I'm, I'm thrilled that he's doing this because, um, you know, I just uh, every now and again, I want to take a month off and I also want to uh, continue working on other projects and new movie reviews and music related things. So he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll help keep the show going. And, and thank goodness for that right here, right now. I am thrilled, overjoyed, to welcome a first-time guest whose work I've been following ever since encountering them on Film Spotting Trivia, reading their letterbox reviews, copious interviews, here, there, and everywhere. They also recently started a delightful new podcast called Acting Out alongside co-host Ryan McQuaid. And in that podcast, they look at the careers of specific actors taking a curated selection of their filmography and doing an episode per film to analyze why uh, they think, you know, an actor is worth discussing. And it's such an insightful, entertaining, consistently fun podcast. Uh, I'm grateful for it. And uh, today's guest, someone I consider to be one of my very favorite cinephiles on the planet right now. What an honor it is to talk with the multi-talented Mitchell Beaupre. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. What a great introduction. I feel like we could probably just end the show right there, huh? <laughs> I know. Wrap I it can't up. Help, I, I can't help it. I'm a fan of my guests as much as I love talking about the directors. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just as excited to talk to you and others that share my insane love. And, and that's the thing, too. It's like I know in the past some people thought, oh, I'm, I'm here for some education. Well, I think this is more of a like a like a, a a film appreciation class mm. you know and, and less necessarily about like let's get all the facts and pronunciations right because i don't think that's possible for me um <laughs> you know i i'm just i'm just here to share the enthusiasm and yeah this is exciting for a lot of reasons we're covering the work of a director that i'm very curious to talk to you about and it's a lot will come up in the course of our conversation because he's he's someone i truly respect have grown to love more over time uh, I, I don't know if we're on the same uh, level or wavelength with his later two films, but that's what's I think it's what's going to make it even more exciting to talk about. And uh, our director of this episode is not James Brown or or James White or James Black. No, we're talking about James Gray mm. today. <laughs> the one. And this the is one exciting. Only. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> No, it's, you know, make it a, make it a casual conversation. We're not necessarily going to like, okay, dive into every single film at length. We're going to, you know, go through them obviously, but we're going to just uh, say, Hey, this is what we feel when we watch these movies. That's yeah. kind of what I'm all about, you know, that's what I'm all rather about than too. that's, that's what yeah. I, it's, it's, it's an interesting profession as like somebody who writes about film for a living that like so much of my response and appreciation for films is like what it makes me feel and then it's like how do i 
actually put that into words. So then I like spend a week on like one thing, just like looking at the the empty screen. Like, how is this? You know, how do I articulate any of this? And yeah, it's it's a mess. <laughs> I know, and that's what's been challenging about hosting a podcast. I would say right, too yeah. is like, how do I articulate all this? Because and that's the thing. There are. There are people, there are great film critics out there who can just turn out content after content and just do it with grace and ease. And and I just, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes, uh, and including reading some of your work. I, I, there's There's been moments, especially your review of the, um, the Abel Ferrara movie. Remind me of the name. The Last Day on Earth movie? Yeah, 444 Last Day on Earth. Yeah. Oh, what a piece. Truly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really, really moved me. And that's, and that's, that's challenging to, to put into words, like all the emotions and things we've been feeling, you know, as, as, <laughs> as a species lately <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. in general. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a challenging time and it continues to be, but thank the Lord for movies and, yes, uh, very, and, very thankful for movies and, and podcasters and yeah, people like, uh, Jimmy G, uh, James Gray. I, I feel like I'm turning into um, Dan Mecca all of a sudden. Right? <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's one of the most charming things about him is whenever it's like, you know, Jimmy Khan, yeah. Kathy B, or, you know, whoever. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like he's on, uh, yeah, he's friends with all these uh, these great talents. Yeah. And just find, so, we should just do that for everybody. Just come up with abbreviations for everybody we bring up. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, like, Isabelle Huppert, is he, is he, is he H, is he? <laughs> just the yeah, most, like, prestigious <laughs> people just really bring him down to, bring him down to my level. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, no, this is, this is, it's going to be fun. And yet, yet a director, I was, you know, a little surprised. I mean, you're going to definitely come back next year without a doubt and talk about another filmmaker. I, I, I think... Initially, though, I was like, "Woo, somebody passionate about James Gray." I think that's why I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to do this episode, right? Um, because he's not somebody I was like, "Ooh, I, I'm, I'm over the moon about him," or I'm responding to him in terms of a stylistic filmmaker. Like, he's not a De Palma or Paul Thomas Anderson where you can immediately go, "Oh my gosh, so much energy with that camera," you know? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got a more like measured kind of approach to what he's doing, and. And I think that's something that I respond to as well. But yeah, he's he's definitely not somebody who like has that name credential where especially like like people on the street, even if you're not like a huge movie person, you obviously know like Scorsese or like Francis Ford Coppola or something like that. And like you mentioned, like more I guess maybe people on the street maybe don't know De Palma, but obviously like people who are even kind of tangentially into film will know who De Palma or PTA somebody like that is obviously like Tarantino and like Gray's like a guy who comes up with the PTAs and the Tarantinos and like from that nineties kind of era. And he's somebody who's obviously respected a lot, but yeah, he doesn't have that like stamp where people will say like, that's a James Gray movie kind of thing. Yeah, I know. And that's what I think is really interesting too, because I, I feel like most of the directors that I've talked about in the past, you know, because I know my my former co-host Patrick when I told him yeah I'm doing James Gray he's like oh yeah I always get him confused with James Mangold and I was like sure <laughs> I don't know, a, a work for hire I don't know like a, a, a director that you know just 
is is confident behind the camera and yet at the same time is telling stories in a rather straightforward way but it's still working on an emotional level i think that's the thing i thought about when i was watching something like we own the night like oh yeah i've yeah. seen this story before but it's still done with uh yeah just such confidence and an investment in the actual characters and what they're feeling yeah to where i'm feeling that yeah yeah i think that you especially feel that in like his earlier pit those like crime pictures where yes, he yes. is kind of doing things that we've seen before like definitely a guy who is drawing from his like 70s crime movie influences with like his first three, little odessa in the yards and we own the night are like totally those kind of things but yeah like you just said i think that they still stand out so much because of him putting character first and like everything yes. that he does and you really feel those emotions with it and then after that he and like two lovers and onward he starts varying things and becomes like his own filmmaker in a way and goes in these different directions that you know we can definitely get into more but yeah i think that through everything he really does put character first and you can feel that emotion and everything that he's working with Absolutely. And before we explore the gray area. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, I, yeah. And, and also before we get to the what we watched recently segment, I just kind of want to know, how, you know, because you're a first time guest. Mm -hmm. How did you become the movie freak that you are? How did like was there an epiphany, a lightning bolt moment where you're just, you saw a particular movie and just went, oh, "Movies, you're for me." <laughs> yeah, I think I think I like went through different stages of it. Maybe where when I was so when I was a kid, I was always really into movies, and when I was like younger, that's just kind of the. Or at least for me, it was the the movies that you get into when you're younger. Um, as somebody who sure. was born in 1990, so like I was like really into Jurassic Park and like Lord of the Rings and stuff came out, and I was like obsessed with those movies. Um, but obviously, just more like mainstreamy kind of things. And then probably when I was like 14 or so, I so I can't remember what kind of the genesis of it was where like I sought this out, but I saw Donnie Darko, which I know is kind of an obvious like entry-level movie for somebody of like my generation um to get into and be like oh this is so different than anything that i've seen before um and like has me thinking and you know actually like really reflecting and dissecting a movie for like weeks after i watch it and watching it over and over and over again and seeing something that's like so cool that i want to show it to all my friends um so like that that kind of brought me to like another level and then I think I just started going to Blockbuster and like seeking <laughs> out different kind of things. And you know, maybe it was, maybe because of Donnie Darko, somehow I got into like the IMDb message boards when they were still existing. Mm. And so getting into that, that's when I started finding like, I saw the top, the IMDb top 250 and like seeing people talking about what kind of the like Pantheon movies were. And so around that time, like 14, 15 is when I started seeking out things that were at least a little bit off center of like the the most mainstream stuff that's like playing in like all the theaters so i would see like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind or then go back and oh, watch yeah. like citizen kane or like even american beauty which isn't like a movie that i like anymore but at the time i hadn't seen anything sure. like it so it like blew my mind and like felt like i was seeing a different kind of cinema and like an adult cinema and so i think that was really the that like 14 
age was where I really started diving into it. And it was really like the help of something like the IMDb message boards that really got me into it because I didn't have friends that were really into movies in the same way. So it was like getting into online communities that got me into it. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, there is definitely like, you know, a 10 year age difference because, you know, for me, when I saw Pulp Fiction in a suburban mall, yeah. I was just like, what is this? Yeah. I am. My brain is not ready for this, but I'm beyond excited to look at film as more than just like, oh, let's go have a good time with your friends and, you know, get some popcorn and then think about what we're going to have for dinner later. You know, it's just it's it it became more of a I need to study this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think, Taryn, that's I mean, that's part of what's so good about Tarantino like whatever people think of him now and I'm not I'm not the hugest fan of him at this point in my life but I think that he is such a great director for people to get into film because he is somebody who is so film obsessed and diving into his influences and like actively wanting to make the coolest thing possible so it totally makes sense that he's a guy who gets people into film and I you know, yeah, there's that age difference. But when I was getting into film, like I saw Pulp Fiction and like Reservoir Dogs when I was like 14, 15. And those were sure. definitely like some of my favorite movies at that time. And I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to experience like Pulp Fiction in a theater when I was, you know, that age and like seeing that for the first time as the like fervor around it was happening too. like that would have been absolutely out of control. I never really pieced this together until just now. But because, you know, I was a musician first and then a cinephile second, but they were so close together. And I think it has to do with Kurt Cobain's death because Mm. I, I, I I was obsessed with Nirvana. I picked up a guitar because of Nirvana Mm. and just music became my life for a while. And then we lost him and it was just so devastating. And I think it was probably the same year, if I'm not mistaken, where suddenly I'm going to the movies way more to just sort of cope with that sure. loss. You know, and, and I, I was still playing music. I was, I was still finding, you know, catharsis through it. But then I see Pulp Fiction. And to me, Quentin Tarantino became a rock star. Yeah. You know, like he was the he just had a couple movies out and there were already biographies right. at Barnes and Noble <laughs> yeah, written, yeah, out, yeah. written about him. And I could go there and see like, oh, his list of 100 favorite movies in the back of the book. And I was just like, what is this? Yeah, I got to see all these movies now. So, yeah, it's just like it's sort of interesting transition there for me and yet like still to this day I kind of go back and forth between do I love music more do I love movies more right. well it all depends on <laughs> like if I'm listening to a great album or I'm seeing a great movie and that moment it's really they're kind of <laughs> both in the same and that also is going to lead us into the what we watched recently segment because I will be talking about a music documentary oh god that was a uh, sometimes when I do segues well <laughs> I just I do pat myself on the back and I don't normally do but yeah. hey just just it a, works. just take the moment to appreciate it. I do. I yeah, I feel good cuz sometimes you know there's awkwardness or you're stumbling around with your yeah. words or there's some pauses and ums and likes and all that stuff but then once in a while you're like yeah. Segways are hard but I you got you got to make them happen. But when you they're know, smooth they, I mean that's that's something special. Right? Babe Ruth pointing to <laughs> right, right <yeah>. field. <laughs> Just telegraphing that's exactly it. Equivalent. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah, I think right? that I think that's exactly. I think culturally it's pretty much the exact same thing. What you just did and Babe Ruth pointing that bat out. I think culturally <laughs> it has the same amount of significance. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we got this other segment where we're going to talk non-James Gray uh, material. Somebody say what we watched recently. Uh, so I'm mean, yeah, like I try to keep up with new releases, as I'm pretty sure you do as well. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. You can whatever you enjoyed recently, or something you want to highlight for the audience out there. You know, it, it could be anything you want, really. For sure. for now, and we'll start. We'll start with you. Oh yeah, sure. <clears throat> so for for me, yeah, I I. As part of the job, mostly, I keep up with new releases. I mean, I'm interested in new movies, but I definitely get the most out of making sure that I make time to watch older stuff um, as regularly as possible. So for me, the one that is most pressing on my mind is that this morning I actually watched The Outsiders for the first time ever. Um, wow. Francis Ford Coppola's 1983 film. And I watched it on the uh, the 4K the complete novel version of it. So I've never seen the theatrical cut of it. I just watched the complete novel version of it. And I, I thought it was fantastic. I, um, well, let me, let me ask you what your thoughts on it are first, because you guys have done an episode on Coppola, right? Yeah, and this is the funny thing. We didn't really cover that much. For some reason, for that particular episode, that was the days of, of Brad and Al. Yeah. They're like, let's just do the four heavy hitters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's everybody what I wants to talk about. <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, I'm like, there's going to be a, there has to be a sequel episode yeah. uh, one day down the road. And I would happily cover The Outsiders. What's funny is that it's been, a bit, been about like six or seven years since I've seen it, but the last time I saw it, was that a drive-in? Oh, that's perfect. And that was really cool. The, the feeling surrounding that movie is the ensemble, and mm-hmm. everybody in it was <laughs> going to break big. You know, they were up-and-comers at the time, and it was one of those movies that I probably saw after I saw The Karate Kid. Right. Like, I went back, and was like, oh, Ralph Macchio's in this? Oh, Patrick Swayze's in this? Speaking of Donnie Darko. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's just... I love movies with great ensembles, and my my last viewing of it pretty much cemented the fact that I think it is one of those classic films uh, that initially I did just see the 90-minute cut, <laughs> and that was yeah. not ideal, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. So that's what that's what I hear is that the, the theatrical cut isn't, like, the complete novel version is definitely, like, the definitive version, and I can totally see mm-hmm. why. I mean, watching it... That version runs like two hours, and it's it's tough for me to see what you would cut out of it to make it the ninety-ish yeah. minute theatrical version. It really feels like such a complete film, and yeah, it's it's so interesting to watch movies of his from that era, like his that seventies run. Those four, obviously, you know, four masterpieces in a row. Like it's beyond comprehension that somebody did that, but. Right. That's probably why we approached it that way at the time. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. And I feel like the 80s are such an interesting decade for him, partly because of that, because it's like, what do you do after that? And it's like 
he goes in such interesting directions and it's something that I've been discovering. I think I had seen a couple of them before this year. I had seen like Rumblefish a while ago, um, mm-hmm. Tucker, the man in his dream a while ago. But this year I saw Outsiders and Peggy Sue got married and one from the heart all for like the first time. And oh. it's just such an interesting period for him where he's like taking these swing, like one from the heart is such a huge swing and sure. obviously was not appreciated at the time, but is getting more appreciation now. And I think it's such like a magical movie to watch. And then the the duo of Rumblefish and the Outsiders are really just wonderful to watch and like take you to this kind of different place. And it's just interesting to see him exploring youth in that way after mm-hmm. like they feel so much like movies that somebody would make at the beginning of their career where it is like very youthful and about like ensembles and the characters, not the kind of movies that somebody would make after doing Apocalypse Now and The Godfather and everything. And I think that that's part of what makes them so wonderful to watch because they feel like they have this like rough around the edges kind of thing that fits the characters, but there also is like a majesty to them where it feels grandiose and bigger than life at the same time, which I think The Outsiders really encapsulates like both of those different like extremes of it. No, that's a great point. And 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 the fact that I I I have to I can't help but wonder. I mean after what he, what he went through with Apocalypse Now. I mean, good lord. Right. The PTSD, I'm sure. And you know, it, it nearly destroyed him in, in in so many ways. I wonder if he just sat back and went I need to go back to my roots and yeah. you know, the days of like Speaking of the late great Jimmy Kahn, the Rain People, yeah, you know, like an earlier, or earlier film where he, 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 yeah, it was more <laughs> kind of like James Cray territory, where yeah. it's really about character, and 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 I think part of him too probably was like, well, you know, there's, I want to touch upon an era that you know I grew up in or that I knew a lot about, or you know, there, he just works well with actors in general. And maybe just like, let's, let's, let's touch on youth in an American graffiti kind of a fashion. Yeah. You know, to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and like you said too, like the, the ensembles that he puts together, the outsiders is so weird to watch with just like, everybody is just a face like Rob Lowe, like Emilio Estevez popping up the, the Tom Cruise just like kind of in the background <laughs> almost for Mojo yeah. with like his teeth and everything. Like it's, so bizarre to just see that popping up and like Diane Lane so young and like it really is just it's such it's such a weird ensemble it reminded me a lot of like watching Diner for the first time which was like the year before Uh, and how just like every single person is a face Mm mm-hmm yeah no definitely and I don't know if it came out. What year did it come out? 84? 83. 83 was, yeah, both Outsiders and Rumblefish, I think, came out both in 83, which is interesting. Yeah. Like a year after something like Fast Times, although, you know, it's a very different movie, but at the same time, emphasis on that cast and you're kind of going, whoa, I didn't know this person was in it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I showed, um, my partner Sam and I have been going through like a lot of Nick Cage movies this year because they're like really getting into him and, um, and we watched Fast Times like a month or two ago, which was there. They had never seen it before. And so I had to be like, you know, keep your eyes peeled. This is the this is the seat. This is like the moment where Nick Cage is like in the background for like a second. Like he pops up like once or twice, just like in the background. And I'm like, keep your eyes peeled for it. It's like, yeah, just a movie like that where this huge 
you know, name. I mean, Tom Cruise and the Outsiders is, a, you know, another great example where, like, this huge, 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 like, mammoth presence is just in, like, such a small part of it. It's really fun to watch. No, definitely. No, I, I, I remember it holding up and just being amazed. And it was probably around the time, too, even, I, I, it was like, six years ago, too, where I was like, yes, I love hosting a show about directors, but sometimes I'm just really drawn more to the actor. Yeah. And following their career in the same way that I would a director and just, you know, relishing the fact that like, Oh yeah, they tried this and they did that. And that's what you're doing with your amazing podcast. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, starting out with Tom Cruise and very excited to see where, where the show goes from there and all the many possibilities that can arise <laughs> with when you, when it comes to focusing on an actor, like, Hey, you could do Tom Cruise and, yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, start at the beginning and wow, you got quite a career and certainly people are even saying, ah, he's got to stop doing all these action movies and go back to actually, you know, uh, doing a, a, a subtle performance again, or at least acting in a way that doesn't require him to jump off of buildings and stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which I would love to see. I don't, I, you me know, too. I, I love, I love the action stuff. I lo- especially the mission impossibles. I love so much. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is like more of an appreciation of it now. Um, but I think that that's always underappreciated. The fact that he's able to maintain a believability in those characters while doing all of that stuff is like astronomical and doesn't get appreciated enough but i really would love to see him go back because you know speaking of directors like tom cruise was always especially in that like 90s early 2000s around like a guy who took all of the opportunity he had and basically was like i want to work with all of the best directors in the world and like right. every single movie is just like an a-list like top-notch director and do, yeah, doing stuff that, like, I mean, Magnolia, like, right after, like, he saw Boogie Nights and was like, yeah, whatever that guy's doing next, I need to be a part of it. And he does, like, the most outlandish role that we've ever seen him do and brings such charge and emotion to it. And, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see him go back into doing something with, like, that kind of, like, heft to it from an actor perspective. Oh, absolutely. And... Yeah, geez, <laughs> what a run, especially in 99, you know, Crazy. and very, very different performances yeah. in Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. but both strong. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I think those, like, that's, that's, I don't think you can argue that that's, like, not his best year, yeah. those two performances right next to each other. Yeah, somebody should start a podcast all about the uh, year 1999 in movies. It's weird movies that nobody's done that, done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Something oh, that's like, another great show. Like, party like it's 1999, but I don't know, maybe, like, work the word podcast into there. I don't know how you would do mm, it, but... I see potential. I see potential. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, we can just gush about our favorite podcast, too, for a whole podcast. We, ser- we certainly <laughs> could. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm going to talk about a, a new film that I don't know is officially opened everywhere yet. I sure hope it does. And it should come to no surprise that I love music documentaries and concert films. Um, and I haven't even logged this on Letterboxd yet. I think I'm just waiting for the right moment. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's not a movie. I th- I don't think everybody's going to like, all right, I'm going to rush out and see this. And I'm going to make sure to sing its praises the way I am. But it's one of it's one of my favorites of the year and but it's it comes with some bias i absolutely adore courtney barnett Mm. um and it's a tour documentary 
that's very intimate, and it's called Anonymous Club, directed by her close friend Danny Cohen, shot on 16mm film over a three-year period. And again, like there's not a lot of plot, (laughs) per se, when you're watching... um, you know, a musician live out their life and go on tour. But there's some interesting touches here. I mean, it does start out very traditionally to where you're like, hmm, this could just be another music documentary that uh, I've seen before, more or less, because it starts off with like a an interview subject or, you know, an interviewer kind of not necessarily grilling her, but challenging her in a way and being like, why did you write a song about a panic attack? What's that all about? Uh, and I think that's that's the, actually the reason why I became a fan of hers, is that the first song, I mean, it's a breakthrough song at the time, too, that it came out. It's a song called Avant Gardener. Mm. And when I heard that, I was just like, oh, she is completely speaking my language. She's, like, encapsulating exactly what anxiety is all about. Like, it's not something that's necessarily triggered by something. It's just... You could be gardening and then have a panic attack. Like, yeah. sometimes it just happens, right? And I, I just felt like, you know, an instant connection, not just with the lyrical content, but just her delivery was interesting. Like, the talk singing approach and the fact that she's, like, a born lyricist. Like, she just has these turns of phrases that nobody else has ever come up with before. That is, And she has these wild song titles and just... I don't know. When, and I've seen her three times live. And each time, I, I felt like, yeah, I am kind of witnessing uh, a musician that I hadn't seen before. And that's exciting in of itself. And I feel like this film captures that throughout while acknowledging that she is a shy person. She is a true blue introvert that uh, may not necessarily be wired for the rock star spotlight. Right. You know, I I think that's kind of what the film's initial thesis is hinting at. Like, yeah, you're going to watch a movie about an unconventional rock star. But um, it incorporates like an audio diary that she's kept for some, you know, some narration uh, touches here and there. Uh, but the, and a lot of the movie isn't necessarily explicitly about mental health or imposter syndrome, but it definitely touches on that and it, it touches on it in subtle ways at times or very revealing ways. Uh, it's clear that music for her is very cathartic, as it normally is for somebody who, you know, struggles a lot with depression or anxiety. And it's also like a film that's kind of asking, well, how do you make a movie about somebody who's struggling and doesn't necessarily want to be in front of a camera? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, very observational, low key. There isn't a lot of drama or big moments necessarily, but there are some that just worked for me, uh, you know, and certainly moved me. Like there is a moment where she's admitting that, you know, I don't think we necessarily see it on stage, but she talks about how she's playing one of her, in my opinion, one of her best songs, Depreston, and she's playing it live in front of an audience and she starts crying at one point because she's just such in a heavy place and they don't necessarily say why. It could be because of a breakup or something. And, you know, just knowing that, like, music can do that for her just like get her really way back in touch with emotions on that deep level and i think that's why we love music you know it just it automatically taps into something uh 
that is hard to define, but it's just there. It's like there are certain songs you hear and you feel like you're going back in time to when you felt big feelings. Mm. Uh, and, you know, she's she's just a born writer and she is very charismatic at times, you know, and being awkward and in, in, in that charming way. Uh, but yeah, she also sits with her cat writing songs. Obviously, that's going to appeal to me. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I saw a headline for this that's like, that's kind of said that, oh, this movie is stunning in its normalcy. Like, it's just so naturalistic and laid back. And I mm. think that's probably because she is too, you know? And, um, it's, it's very intimate and empathic and, and kind and warm, all those things that, you know, yes, there are moments where she's screaming in front of a microphone, but it is less about, you know, just, all right, I'm a rock star. Look at me. I'm amazing. You know, it's less about like the attention that comes with it. It's, it's, it's morally, it's more about just music is being healing and the, the presentation is just very organic. It's more like a meditation on what music and touring is all about. Uh, yeah. Again, it's like, a, it's, it is a hard movie to just like summarize in a traditional sense. And that's probably why I'm kind of all over the map and describing it and just saying like, well, it's like this and it's like this and it's like this, <laughs> but it is kind of all these things wrapped into one. Um, and for people who are like hard on themselves, I think you'll definitely feel compassion because there are times where, she is struggling to be the person that everybody wants her to be. Or she's like, I just want to be at home and not on the road. I just want to be writing in my own room and not in a hotel room, those sort of things. I, you know, the, the feeling of displacement is there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, again, don't expect this to be life changing or earth shattering. And it's possible that maybe if you've never heard Courtney Barnett before, you may not like instantly click with it the way um, I did. But for me, it was pure joy from beginning to end. And, and like I said, very moving, even if the presentation itself isn't anything remarkable. But I know it was picked up by Oscilloscope and I know it's going to open up uh, initially in New York and L.A. So I really hope it expands out. And isn't just like, all right, let's throw this on streaming because right. I think I, I really want more music documentaries to play on a big screen because being surrounded by the sound of the music is just part of the experience, too. Yeah. And yeah, I think that there is promise there for it because I think Oscilloscope is definitely one of the better distributors right now at not letting things just like get dumped on streaming like a week after they come out or whatever like right. they, they really what are hoping. like pushing and like believing in their films they've definitely been pushing this one i think so we're recording this episode on uh thursday evening and i'm pretty sure it's the starts playing anonymous club starts playing tomorrow in uh new york and la so yeah, hopefully it'll expand more. I haven't gotten the chance to see it yet myself, but I've definitely heard like really good things about it from yourself now and from other people. I work, my day job is working at Letterboxd, and my boss loves this film. Just did an interview oh, with, um, interviewed Danny Cohen, the director of it, which we'll be publishing um, sometime within the next few days. And so it's it's definitely been one of those ones that like I've been hearing drips about for months now. And I'm definitely excited to check it out, especially after, I mean, I think that you did a wonderful job of packaging what uh, you find so resonant about the film. And it makes me more excited to see it as somebody who doesn't 
typically get into like music docs that much or like concert docs as much. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot. These are all kind of what you expect. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. So this feels more like something that will key into like my wavelength of really being able to yeah sit and like just be with this person, this artist, because I think the artists are incredibly interesting and somebody who yeah kind of shuns the spotlight while also having to embrace it almost as an interpretation of their art, I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the musicians that I really respond to are people who, yeah, have that kind of like showmanship to them, but not in a way where it's showmanship for the show. It's like showmanship because that performing is like their vessel of expression. And so that moment that you described where she starts like crying a little bit while performing a song like that, that sounds so beautiful to me and is the kind of thing that like I always really respond to because it feels so raw and so like genuine from the heart. And yes. like, they, the performer like loses themselves so much in being able to express it that even being surrounded by all of these people and maybe not being comfortable in the spotlight that expression of their art is so pure to them that they can like let that wall down in that moment. Yeah, I know. And that's, that's the experience I had, you know, with her live. I don't know if necessarily she cried, but you could just tell she's so in the moment with the music that it's hard not to be moved and amazed. And that's, that's happened with a lot of recent singer songwriters maybe even of that generation, like the, 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 the 20 somethings, the, the early thirties, uh, songwriters, the indie rock songwriters. And certainly a lot of them, you know, happen to be, uh, you know, just emotionally raw, yeah. but not necessarily like, Oh, look at me. I'm amazing. It's just like, there's, again, yeah. we've used the word vulnerability a lot when it comes to describing, you know, certain actors or certain films and that, that holds true for a musician like Courtney. And the approach here is very fly in the wall to where it's not like demanding you to feel something. So I, I just appreciate when it is that and not, you know, something that you come to expect. And certainly this, and if you pair it up with the recent Nick Cave, uh, yeah. Collaboration with, um, Andrew Dominic, they're just unique in, in, in portraying what it's like to perform a song or to experience the process of creation. There's just something about what those two films, what this, what the Courtney Barnett one and the Nick Cave film have done in a way for me. And certainly as a musician, I just responded to it probably even more deeply. So thank goodness again for movies like this. Yeah. <laughs> Really, and I, I, yeah, I'm sure Oscilloscope won't just bury it. I think it's going to be something that I hope people get to see and uh, explore the, yeah, the, the amazing discography that she's had. It's only, I think she's only made four records right mm. now at this point in time. So I hope people really listen to her music because, again, just I'm kind of floored by, especially the, her lyrics. She's, she's a poet. <laughs> um, Mitchell, I feel like you were born ready to talk about the director of this episode. I just, I just have this feeling you, you came out of the womb and said, I want a podcast about James Gray.
it's, it's what and, it's uh, what all the kids say when they come out of the womb. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. The kids come out. They say, "Give me two lovers right now." I gotta. I gotta watch that <laughs> film. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know. I just. I, yeah. And he. Oh wow. So. I, I listened to his appearance on um, the Leonard Malton podcast, and at one mm. point he says, "Art exists only in the framework of risk." And I'm like, "I'm I'm writing that down." Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Jimmy Gray, Jimmy G, Jimmy G, as we all call him. Yeah, JG. What a director. <laughs> uh, yeah, and like I said in the intro, someone I was just kind of. Uh, Labeling is, yeah, pretty good, solid, consistent. Didn't necessarily stand out for me, although, you know, reading some things, you know, people have said, oh, he's one of the all-time greats. Just people aren't necessarily responding to him in the same way that they are with uh, Paul, Tom, Andy, or Marty Score. (laughs) So... (laughs) um, But it's clear he comes from the old-school Hollywood tradition, you know, we, we've mentioned Francis Ford Coppola. That, that was good on your part there. Um, because he's definitely a fan, as mm-hmm. well as most cinephiles are. But <laughs> still, he uh, brings a lot of the same sensibilities of, of, of Coppola and maybe even a little bit of Kubrick, certainly for his most uh, recent film. But mm-hmm. just the more revered directors of the 70s. And in that way, I feel like his movies are kind of like throwbacks. They're They're just... Mature, well-observed, uh, patient, very much focused on these conflicted characters that I guess they're consumed and driven at times to the point of being completely defeated and alone for, you know, because, well, when you start to give a damn or when you start to care too much or when you start to go for things maybe out of impulse, then they might get the best of you. And I think... Also, especially early on, it's clear that he's a New Yorker, mm, <laughs> I <yeah>. think, <laughs> clearly. Uh, and, oh, God, that cliche of like, well, the, the city of New York is a character in this film, yeah. I think would be apt <laughs> for those early films. Yeah. Um, but I want to hear about what, why on Earth or why on Neptune did you want to talk <laughs> James Gray on this podcast today? Yeah, I think that, you know, he, he really is... Such an interesting director, and I think that along with that adage of, you know, New York being a city, um, or New York being a character in itself in films, there is, like, the one of, you know, they don't make them like they used to, and oh, yeah. it's that's one that I always would think when watching his films, even, like, We Own the Night and The Yards, but then... A, Especially, so like I would watch those and think like, oh yeah, this is just like, these movies are just like the 70s kind of crime thrillers that like I adore, like 70s, you know, for, I mean, maybe still, but certainly when I was younger, my favorite like era for film and especially American film and Mm -hmm. his earlier films just are so clearly like throwbacks to that. And then he would evolve from that and move in different directions but still when doing something like the immigrant or the lost city of z they also are films where they still fit that descriptor of you know they don't make them like this anymore but just in a very different kind of way so it's like he's a guy who is always drawing from he's almost like excavating the past of film and clearly like finding 
his influences and bringing them out onto screen, but I think that he is able to not do that in a way that feels like imitative where it just feels like a gimmick where he's like doing this kind of like pastiche of, you know, this is what it would be like to make a film now as if it was a seventies crime film. He like is lacing in so much of his own like personality, his own vision, his own style into these homages in a way that I guess I don't, don't even like homage isn't even necessarily the right word, I suppose, but yeah, they just feel like the kind of films that I wish people were making more of. And I think that he is somebody who, when you listen to him in interviews, he obviously has so much reverence for films of the past. And not like... It's it's fun to watch him in interviews because he doesn't have like outright disdain for what the business is these days. He almost mm-hmm. has like a total understanding of how we've gotten to where we're at now with film but there's also this like frustration with him for that because it's become such a monopoly and that's so frustrating for him as somebody who makes these mid-level films and that's what he's always loved and what I think people like you and I like really respond to our films like something like The Godfather which you couldn't make today or if you did make today it would be so much smaller scale and released in you know 200 theaters for a week and then not like people wouldn't be able to talk about it or it'd be discovered in that way where The Godfather was released on like two screens the first week that it came out and rolled out over a period of eight months to become this phenomenon and that's just not the kind of thing that happens anymore and so i think he's like upholding this kind of tradition of what those films are and it makes him feel like almost a singular identity because he's the only one doing it at kind of the level that he's doing it like people like scorsese are still making scorsese movies but he is such and he's almost a monopoly of his own where it's like Scorsese is, you know, this pedestal where he's able he's to a get brand. exactly. He's yeah. a brand where he's able to get the money to make his films, even if they're right. not bringing in a lot of money, just because he's Martin Scorsese. Where James Gray, as we said, isn't like a household name, so he doesn't have that prestige to him. Yet somehow he's still able to be making the movies that he's making. It's always fascinating to me that he can still come together and make a movie like The Lost City of Z, which is, like, such a gargantuan effort, but he still does it on, like, a small enough scale, just kind of on his own in this, like, pocket of the world that he's able to kind of get away with it. And I'm just so grateful that he's able to do that still. I don't know how long he'll continue to be able to do it in the state of the industry the way that it is now, but I'm very grateful for what it's at right now. Yeah, and I I know this sounds kind of reductive, as I'm thinking it, but he makes movies that my parents love. Right. You know, or I mean, it's, you know, sadly lost my dad, you know, at a young age, but at the same time, it's hard not to think about, you know, his favorite, his favorite movies were more of the like, Oh, the apocalypse now and the Godfather and the conversation and those certainly the Coppola movies. And as I'm watching James Gray movies, I'm like, ah, damn it. My dad would have liked this movie. Right. Or certainly when I've shown, my mom, like something like We Own the Night, she's like, oh, I'm totally into this. And, you know, some of the newer things, not so much. Like, you know, I talked with Keith Gordon on the last, uh, or the, the, the one of the more recent episodes, too, is that 
stories should often you know lean more towards ambiguity to, to give the audience something to think about but i think early on he offers that but just at the same time there's a sense of resolution even if it is melancholic cuz i think his movies are kind of really sad extremely you know sad. and not and not like <laughs> and not like in this oh god you know devastating yeah i mean it's just there there's a subtlety in a way that i guess maybe even uh, even recently rewatching his latter two films there's still kind of a not a disconnect but just a surprise that the level of subtlety i'm not connecting with as much as i'd hope but i i have a feeling it'll be the third or fourth viewing and I'll kind of go, Oh, it's all clicking for me now. And maybe later as I'm getting older, who knows, but certainly his, his earlier films, something like little Odessa, I have a, you know, a a memory of renting at the video store just because I'm like, Oh, okay. Tim Roth. Right. He was in reservoir dogs. (laughs) Okay, cool. Let's, let's, let's see what he's doing in this. You know, not paying attention at all to the director name and the way I was with like, oh, the new Kevin Smith movie, got to see that, or you know, the new yeah. Tarantino movie or whatever. But I almost thought of this as I'm watching it as this is kind of like his hard eight. It's you know, it's like yeah. it's a calling card debut, but it's you know, it's simple, it's low key, it's based a little bit more in genre, but yet at the same time, you can see that it's very character driven, very tense. You, you know where it's going, but you're still along for the ride because he cares about these people. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what I appreciate the most is this does feel, you know, like a personal story for him. And I think certain elements of it were like I think his mother was stricken with with cancer as he was writing this film, possibly or maybe even. That yeah, she earlier. she died of brain cancer. Um, yeah. While he was kind of working on it or like, yeah, I think bef- before he made it. So he was definitely drawing from that with the Vanessa Redgrave character in Little Odessa. Mm-hmm. And like it was like he. So he went to USC and when he was there, his like college thesis film um did like pretty well and got like the attention of a producer and the producer was like hey i'd love for you to make a feature here's like all the scripts that i have like you know pick whichever one you want to do gray read them all and was like i don't like any of these (laughs) and the producer's like okay well then write your own um and like encouraged him to write from his own experience and kind of like about his own life as growing up as like a Ukrainian Jewish guy, like descent. Um, Mm -hmm. and his parents, I think his parents were immigrants or his grandparents were immigrants. Um, but yeah, a guy growing up in that world in Flushing in New York city and like not connected to the mob in any way, but sort of like he would talk about how it was kind of like loosely like in, the sphere of the mob like he would like walk down the street and like those guys would just kind of be around um even if he wasn't like directly connected or his family were directly connected to them in any kind of way but so the producer was like write something from you know your experience but give it like a a genre hook so that we can sell it basically and that's i mean that's exactly what little odessa is but like you said like there's the genre hook is there to where it like fits within that like 90s crime movie wave but certainly mm-hmm. not in the sense of like the Terrence, you know, knockoffs that, you know, were rampant in the 90s like it is 
yeah, it's it's like his kind of thing that he's doing. It's so much more. Yeah, mel- melancholic is a really good word for I think a lot of his films, including Little Odessa. Like it's so character driven. It's so sad. It's so much about like legacy and like lineage, which I think a lot of his movies are mm. about fathers and sons, yeah. especially. And then yeah, like the the mother characters throughout his films, I think are really interesting and the relationships between them, Ellen Burstyn and the yards, I think is a really devastating oh, yeah. kind of character. But then also the the brotherly thing, which we see a few times, like We Own the Night, obviously is really about like that brotherly relationship. And then Little Odessa, Tim Roth and Edward Furlong, um, like not wanting to like, like wanting to like own your own shit, but also not wanting to pass your mistakes and your flaws to the person like coming after you so like tim roth doesn't want edward furlong to like live in his life but he's also in a way like not ashamed of his life but he also kind of blames his father for like the position that they're in and like maximilian shell being the father as just like this kind of like shitty dude so good it's yeah it's it's really there's so much going on, even if it is kind of like a simple thing on the surface. And I think you can definitely say that with a lot of his movies, like they have yeah, especially the hooks. first three. Yeah, I yeah, would yeah, say. yeah, totally. They have like really simple hooks, really simple. Like this is yeah, like like you said at the kind of the top of the episode, like this is a generic kind of or conventional um, like crime movie, but he really dives into them and, and like the, the avenues that he goes down, whether it's through the character exploration or just the emotions, I think are so much different than what you would expect. And a lot of the emotion is internalized. And I, yeah, I really do respond to that level of acting as opposed to, you know, let's scream and yell and get manic. And, you know, someone like, I don't think he initially wanted Edward Furlong, and I maybe it was like a studio suggestion, like at the time he was hot because of yeah. Terminator Two and all that. Um, but I I don't know. That's between like something like this and American History X. Okay, he kind of <laughs> guess Edward Furlong shouldn't ha- be, shouldn't have brothers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's kind of he's kind of unsung in this era, and I'm not saying like he's incredible, but certainly. He works. I think he's in, really, I think in, he's something really like well this. cast here. Yeah. 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 No. No. Definitely. And I. Th- I think the one thing I will point out, and I think you might have even mentioned this in your review, um, Maura Kelly. She's yeah. a sweetheart, and I. I adore her, and especially in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. But her character in this is kind of more of an afterthought <laughs> that could have easily been excised and. You know, I I don't think her involvement, you know, her character adds too much to this story because, yeah, like like Vin Diesel says in the uh, FNF franchise, <laughs> it's all about family. Yeah. Yeah. So she yeah, that, that totally couldn't agree more that that character feels like too much of an afterthought. And I think that it's something, especially through those early movies that like Grey he he does have like a very masculine kind of energy as a filmmaker, um, particularly the crime movies. And I think maybe that struggles a lot. The Charlize Theron character in The Yards, I think, is not mm-hmm. great. Um, mm-hmm. And just kind of like it's one of those characters that exists to kind of like get beat around and also be like the love interest, like caught between the two men. And like that's really like her love triangle entire yep. like presence. And it's it's frustrating 
Um, but funnily enough, I think that obviously Ad Astra doesn't really have like it's very focused on the father son dynamic, but like the immigrant um, obviously is his one his only movie with a female lead, but I think mm-hmm. is tremendous at developing that character, and I think that. Two Lovers, it does a great job with the female characters that could have been disastrously underwritten um, to a point where, like, it could have dismantled the film, the, like, female characters in Two Lovers, but I think that they are wonderfully written. And We Own the Night and The Lost City of Z, I think, are two tremendous examples of having kind of one central female character who in so many other movies would just be like the nagging kind of put upon wife or girlfriend, Sienna Miller in Lost City of Z and Ava Mendes in We Own the Night. And he, despite being like a very masculine, very like male focused director, creates such dimensional characters out of the two of those with the aid of the actresses who I think are both phenomenal in those two films. And I really respond to watching those films and like seeing the feminine energy that is allowed to be brought out of those characters and see like the real toll that these lives and these, the lives that like these men are living has on the women around them in a way that doesn't feel like they are just being like drugged through the mud and that's like the point of their existence. They are, they have like such interiority and we really see them as human beings too. Oh, so well said. Yeah, definitely. The interiority. And I I think initially I was concerned that Gwyneth Paltrow in Two Lovers was going to veer into Manic Pixie Dream Girl territory. Mm -hmm. You know? And then just be like, but she's fully realized that character has a lot of flaws, but they're very human flaws. They're, you know, I think that's. Like some of the instincts, we're going to get to that. I, I think that's <laughs> clearly, I'm going to have a lot to say about that one. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, the, his debut is good. It's it's very, like, again, I use the word solid, but at the same time, I think there's there's an elevation to it more when you watch a lot of gray movies in a row, because I, th- I feel like it yeah. highlights the themes, and especially maybe even the first three movies all end with a character being completely alone, more or less, or at least they're left to think about what they've done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think they're left to ponder the consequences and where are they going to go from here? They don't know. And I don't think we as an audience know necessarily either. So there's that ambiguity that I think makes those films a little strong. Even if the story has a resolution and the narrative has a conclusion, it's almost like, well, it doesn't mean everything's going to work out and be great for these people. They're going to, they're going to live with a lot of trauma and and a lot of feelings that are complicated regardless. I think pretty much that's one of his strengths watching all of his movies together is like, yeah, everybody's, got a lot of heavy shit to process <laughs> in the end in, in a way that feels really grounded in reality at the same time it's not all movie like it feels i think that's what i realize is that these people are people that i could have known <laughs> at some point yeah. in terms of like what they do and what they feel uh but yeah no uh, little O. it's a strong <laughs> debut uh, it's not just it's just not it's not just another, you know, gangster Russian mob film. It's a little little surprisingly deeper than that, especially when you think in context of his other work. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I think it's um, Hard Eight was a really good comparison point where I think that it is a good film that also gets a little bit that extra oomph because you do see a lot, like you see that potential of where he's gonna go with it. Right. Right. I, it, no, that's a, that's exactly how I feel about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, going forward, it's 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 almost like the Yards and We Own the Night are kind of companion pieces given the cast. True. Uh, but. You know, I just I watched the yards for the first time recently. And honestly, I couldn't tell you why I put it off for so long given that cast. Maybe it's the title, the the, the cover art, like it just yeah. it seemed a little <laughs> Miramax generic y. Yeah. Uh you know, and I know Harvey Scissorhands, Weinstein is an evil dick. I uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk and, about Harvey a couple of times in this episode. Uh huh. Uh-huh, yeah, sad but true. But no, I mean it still feels like a a step up from from little Odessa. I mean like geez, six years, I think. Yeah. between movies mm-hmm. uh and you know and as much as good lord do i love joaquin phoenix i mean in especially in the films we're talking about i i will say that there are moments throughout his filmography where the the actors he chooses to cast as, as some of the protagonists don't necessarily hit home runs for me and i don't know about Wahlberg. i'm i'm still wrestling sometimes when he is so stoic and kind of, I mean, he doesn't emote as much and maybe that's okay in some instances here. I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. It's too much like a cipher like performance for me here. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, but I don't know if that's bad necessarily. It's more of just like, I'm not sure what I would have wanted from Wahlberg in this movie to really like bring it on home for me uh, in every way. Yet it's still a strong film. And you, when you look at certain, Performances, especially the late great Jimmy Kahn. Hey, yeah. you know he's he's a living legend in every sense, and you know there's a reason why <laughs> James Gray is like I I gotta work with um, James Kahn and uh, you know Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. They're, these are yeah. legends, and you know they, you know they're gonna bring their A game, and he does here. It's it's a very memorable character, and you know very subtle, but also intense in its in its own way, but. Yeah, no, I, I do like the arts. I will say that. I will. I will. But it doesn't necessarily uh, overwhelm me with emotion uh, in the end by the way things play out. It's almost like, oh, that's yeah, that's kind of inevitable. Inevitable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like the yards in like the sense that like Little Odessa, it kind of catches you off guard from what you expect that it's going to be like. It does have mm-hmm. that from the marketing and everything in the title. It has such like that, like you know exactly what this is early 2000s crime movie um and then you watch it and it's like oh this is about like subway operate like these guys who are like it's like such like low level like blue collar crime right um and like it's just like i find that really fascinating i find it interesting that like that aspect of it was based on his own life because his dad literally like did that his dad and like his business partner were indicted on like 50 something counts of like fraudulent activity from like their company, um, like manipulating the MTA oh, or something like yeah. that. I, kn- I knew his dad worked on the yards, but I didn't know he was. Yeah. Oh, boy, indicted. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, so, no, that's again, he's coming from a personal place. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I, I know that he had like, like big issues with like his dad which i think resonates through a lot of his movies (laughs) i was reading this thing where he told this story about like his that his mom before she died 
told him that like one day she followed like his dad would always come home like really late from work and one day his mom like followed his dad to see like what he was doing and he like he basically just kind of like wandered around the city and like went into like newsstands and was like reading like magazines and just like looking at like groceries and not buying anything and just kind of like wandering around and like that Hmm. was like comforting for like his mother I guess because she thought he was probably like sleeping around or something but when James Gray heard that he thought like oh my dad's like a piece of shit he just like literally doesn't even want to come home like he's just like killing time and doesn't even want to come home to like his family and oh, that does come up in the lost city of Z. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, and we're finding we're finding correlations, of course. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I, like I think I think that that you know understanding that relationship that he had with his own father, it's like like every every one of these movies, there's like such. I mean, I guess not the immigrant, um, but like that that contention between fathers and sons, and the yards, I think, is is also like really about class and like these guys oh, sure. who don't feel like they have that kind of status and the the whole like idea of like rehabilitation, like incarceration and coming out and not having opportunities for you. So then you kind of fall back and like you come out of prison and you're almost like forced to be a career criminal because you don't have opportunities laid out ahead of you. It's like, there's so much going on in it, but I agree that maybe Wahlberg's not the best like center for that. And I think that, it still is a place of gray finding his footing a little bit and like knowing what he wants, but not quite knowing how to get there. I think that there are some scenes like there's a scene where um, Phoenix and Wahlberg go to the to this club like soon, maybe the night after Wahlberg got out when they have kind of his like welcome home party. Um, they go out to this club and like Phoenix is trying to hook him up with a woman Um hook Wahlberg up with a woman and Wahlberg's like I don't know how you do that you know I'm not good with my words and like (laughs) like that the line is like so bad um but like the delivery from Wahlberg is like makes it so much like maybe a better actor would have been able to like sell it decently but like Wahlberg delivering it made me actually laugh like watching it this time around yeah um but yeah, I think that so I, I think that you're right that like a better actor maybe could have done more with it. I don't know how much more um there is there to do with that character, but when you're like surrounded by Joaquin Phoenix, Faye Dunaway, Ellen Burstyn, James Kahn, like you kind of really gotta show up. And I think Wahlberg just isn't for, he's never been an actor that's like there for me. Um Right. And, like, he definitely is a little bit out of his depth here. I th- I think he's really well cast in We Own the Night. We'll get, we can get to We Own the Night, but, like, I think that he's actually really well employed in We Own the Night. Um, but the yards, him as, like, the, the centerpiece isn't as strong, which I think speaks to the fact that, you know, then he would start making Phoenix the center of his films for a while because I think that Joaquin Phoenix is tremendous in the yards and oh, takes... Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, like, that's an example of Joaquin Phoenix doing what he does where he takes a character who is absolutely despicable and you still have like empathy for him, which feels like messed up to like understand the emotions that this character is going through and like what he's struggling with. And he brings that like vulnerability to where like you, you certainly don't agree um, with what he's doing, but you still like have an understanding of why he's doing what he's doing. And yeah, I mean, that that's really impressive. There are scenes 
with Phoenix here that I think are like among some of his best work. I think these next three movies with Joaquin, mm-hmm. he's delivering some of his best work. And I, I, I hate to go here, but I'm going to anyway. The fact that he won for Joker is a crime. It's and, a crime. <laughs> uh, it, it just shouldn't have happened. And when you see these movies and, of course, his work with uh, PTA, it's yeah. it's just like, come on. It's, yeah. One <laughs> and, of- and, like, I, I actually really like... And this is this was kind of unexpected for me to realize. I I think I like his performance in Two Lovers even more than the Master, which was like, wait a minute, hold on. Yeah, I, <laughs> that was a real shocker for me. I think Two Lovers is probably his best performance. Period. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. No. I mean, you know, we could just go into We Own the Night because sure. it's 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 really something special because it surprised me again and. Earlier, I said, well, you know, the gray man doesn't always rely on set pieces or exercises in style, right? Uh, but, ooh, there are two <laughs> sequences in this. Yeah. That left me breathless. I was just like, that car chase, holy mother of God, gray, you did it. Yeah. You, I, know, I know he's listening, so just, <laughs> just giving him the affirmation that he, he deserves. In case, you, in case you haven't heard, in case you didn't uh, feel like you did it on the day when you, when you wrapped the movie, I'll, we'll tell you now, 15 <laughs> years later, you did it. You did yep. it, bud. <laughs> and apparently all that rain was CGI'd in later. All because CGI. Like, isn't that amazing? I'm it's just crazy. Like, yeah. And it is, it's yeah. such like, um, like kind of reading about like his process for that specifically is, is so interesting because it does feel in the moment, like so dynamic and such like, like we've all seen a thousand car chases in films and, mm-hmm. but that one feels so specific and unique and like reading that he went through and like watched, like dissected hundreds of car chase scenes in films specifically to <laughs> try and figure out how he could do it differently. And what he like landed on was keeping it in one person's POV the entire time because he felt like he hadn't seen that before. Like he's not cutting to, you know, outside shots a ton and like cutting between the two, the car. I mean, there's like four different cars involved with it, but like cutting between POVs of the different cars or showing like inside the car and then outside the car, inside the car and then outside the car. Like it really is just like locked into Phoenix's POV the entire time. And it's like terrifying because of that. I remember seeing that scene in the theater and just like, like palpably like feeling anxious because you're just so locked into it and you can just like imagine the experience of especially with that rain coming down which is yeah like crazy to find out that that's just like that that is completely cgi because it feels like like i know i think we all know the experience of driving in like a torrential downpour and how much anxiety (laughs) that gives you and then you try to put that with doing it with like a two cars trying to surround you with like a guy with like a shotgun blasting through your window seeing him kill your father in the car in front of you like as you're driving like it's yeah the anxiety is through the roof in that scene yeah i was like wow yeah um watching that whole sequence and just like you said i hadn't seen a car chase shot like that before and yeah, he, he, he does have these moments where you go and when you hear like, yeah, the, the research he did 
and the the lengths he went to and just kind of went, well, I studied every car chase that I could and just try Because, you know, he I think he even said at one point in an interview that he doesn't want to capture what's in his head. He wants to find something better. Mm. And to me, that's a, a true sign of an, an ambitious director for sure. But somebody who's, yeah, I don't want to just settle. You know, yeah. I want to really bring it in a way that you know some some people can like think of him as yeah maybe a little overzealous in some ways but it doesn't necessarily come across that way in this scene it's 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 really about a son about to watch his father die yeah and you're you're never left yes you're you're concerned for everybody's well-being but you're focused on the fact of the inevitability of what's about to happen and the anxiety that that surrounds it and certainly just the fact that this is a car chase taking place in the rain without having the the knowledge of um, this was all CGI. <laughs> You're just like watching it in the moment and going, I can't believe they filmed this in the yeah, rain. Oh yeah, my God. Right. You know? Because <laughs> you're not thinking that in the moment. And certainly the, the sound design, the, just the, yeah, I mean, yeah. everything about it is, is perfect. But the, the movie itself, yeah, I get really caught up in the relationship between the two brothers and the father you know, it's it's like we own we own the night as little Odessa in reverse in a way. It's just kind of like what how can I expand on some of those themes and ideas or that I had early on in my career and you know do even more with it now that I have a budget and big actors and everything. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't slack, right? You know, he yeah. he, he just he, you know people will always point to you know the departed and all that kind of stuff, but there's just something about certainly that. Um, that scene where he's infiltrating the the drug den Oof, too, yeah. oh, talk about palpable tension. Good yeah. lord, yeah, Jesus, yeah. It's it's like that. Yeah, exactly that. It's it's so nerve shredding, and he like he sucks. Talking about sound design, like he sucks like the the kind of sound out of the room. So you just like feel so much in Joaquin's like headspace you feel that sweat that he's happening and you get to that point where it's like he he's using at that point he's working with the cops and he has uh, a lighter on him which is where he has like the bug in so he has to use that lighter to get these guys to you know admit to their crimes so that they can like roll on them and when the criminal gets that lighter and starts fucking with the lighter like you know just like in the the car chase like you know that this isn't going to have a good ending like you right and it becomes that thing that you were talking about with the with the car chase that it's inevitable and so that makes it like more terrifying because it's it is like that thing with i think a lot of um something that i appreciate about james gray is that he can do these films that are you know, like genre E, but he doesn't ever do them in a way where it feels like it's exaggerating reality. So in that moment where the guy gets the lighter, like you, you don't have this idea that something is magically going to happen. That's going to save the day. And like, everything's going to be all right for him. Like this is going to go really bad. And I think that Gray in all of his films keeps you rooted in that reality of what the situation would actually play out as. And I think that that's incredibly effective. It's very effective. Um, Yeah, he has like this kind of unfashionable sense of seriousness in, in regards to like this, these sequences as being intense and very focused and direct 
and yet grounded in character yeah. and the fact that you you want to see what's going to happen to these brothers and what they you know because clearly it starts off as like oh you know Joaquin Phoenix is the king and look at me I got Eva Mendez and everything <laughs> look at my club you know it's just yeah, yeah it, it, like he's a he's a rock star in he, a way he truly, I mean that opening uh, that's what I'm talking oh, about like well so, so the, the opening is really incredible with the black and white like photos yeah. of the, the real life cops and everything but then yeah the when we get to the characters that opening with um uh, what's the Blondie song um uh, it's not Heart of Glass, it is, is it? It is Heart of Glass, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, with Heart of Glass playing and him and Eva Mendez, and, like, mm-hmm. it's it's just such a startling opening that really brings you into that thing, and it feels like, um, like you're watching, you know, Goodfellas or Casino or something, and I think that... So We we on the Night was my first James Gray movie that I ever saw, and I saw it in mm. theaters, um, like I said, and I was going into it, um, I like I didn't know who he was or anything. I liked the actors in it, and it looks like from the trailer and everything, like it was going to be The Departed, right? And The Departed came out like almost exactly a year before this. I loved The Departed. I still do love The Departed, but I was like going in expecting this to be The Departed, and it's very much not that. It like no. has the like visage of that and then it takes that apart from the inside and becomes something totally different. And so when I first saw it in theaters, I wasn't really a big fan of it. I I did like those like set pieces really got me, but that was pretty much it. And I think it's just because I like had such a different expectation for it and I was like 17 at the time, so I think I just wasn't connecting with what it was doing and then it's one that I've really come to admire more and more and more over the years that I've seen it and gotten a better appreciation of what it's doing. And like, that's something that I just love being able to really discover a film through repeated viewings and through me like evolving with it. But the one th- seeing it in the theaters, the, um, because it is set up so much like, yeah, the departed, but with like a brotherly rivalry thing where it's like Mark Wahlberg's the cop, Joaquin Phoenix is the criminal. What's going to happen? They're rivals. You know, this is going to be a rivalry the entire movie kind of thing. And within the first like, what, 20 minutes, Wahlberg gets shot in the head and right. is, is like in the hospital, but is like basically like out of commission. And you're like, uh, like, I just remember seeing that on opening night in the movie theater with a crowd, like a you know, packed crowd full of people who I'm sure like me thought that we were watching The Departed and seeing like the second main character get shot in the head and laid out 20 minutes into the movie. Like the, like it was that, that pin, you could hear like a pin drop in the theater. Like everybody was just like floored when that happened. I know it's a true shocker. I mean, yeah, it's just so interesting that it does play like kind of a deconstructed subversion of yeah. the departed. <laughs> even you even know, the, and the, again, um, the like quote on the on the Blu-ray of it, I can't remember uh, what outlet it was from or what who wrote it, but like the quote on the Blu-ray is referencing it being like the departed. <laughs> of course. Well, I mean, I guess that's a way to sell people in the theater. Yeah yeah, 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 and that makes sense. And you got Mark Wahlberg, who honestly, I guess. Maybe it's it's a, one of those rare exceptions where I like manic Mark Wahlberg because I, I enjoy him in The Departed and Boogie Nights, you know? Like, I like yeah. it when he's acting out as opposed to acting in, in a yeah. way. <laughs> uh, 
subtle plug for your yeah. wonderful podcast. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. But that. um, I I I just yeah, there's there's something about this too. Again, both of them ending up kind of a well, certainly Joaquin Phoenix ends up alone, and but at the same time, it's like, is this a compromise? What I've decided to become. You know, yeah. sort of having that question hanging over him at the end is really remarkable. That's a great choice to have. Yeah, the ending with. is so brutal. And it is, yeah, it's that thing of, like, he starts off, like you said, on top of the world. Like, he's this rock star. Then it, like, all gets ripped away from him. And then he realizes that, like, he loves, like, he, he still wa- he wants to protect his family, right? So he could, mm-hmm. at a certain point, like, completely commit to the life of crime. But, like, he has this morality and this connection still to his family, even though they have such a contentious relationship that he now has to turn into a rat, which like nobody ever wants to do, but he needs to do it to protect his family. And then like, I just find it. So the, the Eva Mendes character is so well drawn out where it's like, once he makes that turn to devoting everything to his family, he becomes so like rooted in that and like committing fully to that, that he's then losing her and she more and more is becoming isolated, even though they're together and in hiding together to protect both of them. He's like not there for her at all. He basically is like abandoning her emotionally because she is like the last remnant of his other life that he's now trying to run away from. And then, so she leaves and he like, everything goes well right like he he you know they take down the bad guys he becomes a full-fledged cop at the end and you think that that's kind of that happy ending the resolution that he has like as you said that like you know these are the films do they have like a a resolution of the plot but then he's looking in the crowd at his coronation ceremony and thinks he sees mendez but it's not her and it's just this idea that like he got that thing that he wanted, that he thought he wanted, like, everything's okay, like, quote-unquote, but he actually is just completely fucking alone because he lost the one person who actually, like, through it all was, like, his family and the person that he cared about the most. Oh, so well said. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's what makes it haunting in the end, you know? I mean, rather than just, like, oh, yeah, I got the bad guys, now I'm a cop and everything's great, you know? Yeah, there's- yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. Th- yeah, I, th- I don't think James Gray wants to leave the audience on that note. Yeah, I, I weirdly, I don't think James Gray is uh, going to make propaganda or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Although I, I have to admit the the the, sh- the the shootout in the marshland. I I wish. I don't know. I don't. Part of me is like that's probably the only hiccup for me in terms of making it like a pitch perfect movie. I'm not saying it's bad. I just maybe it is a little anticlimactic. And it, I don't know if that's intentional or just like well, let's just not go you know, wild like we did with the car chase. Yeah, it's, it almost, I, I think and hope that, like, it's, it's intentionally, like, not this, like, huge kind of thing. The thing that I, which I don't, on this rewatch, um, that, like, I noticed and really appreciated that I don't think I really paid enough attention to the previous times I had seen the film. The one thing that I really liked in that Marsh kind of shootout at the end is, like, Wahlberg, so... It's like a big shootout, cops in the marshes and like the criminals inside this building where they were the drug deal was going down. And like right away, the cop next to Wahlberg gets shot and killed and drops down. And Wahlberg like falls down too. He didn't get hit or anything, but he falls down, sees his um, like coworker 
dead there, and he just completely freezes. And yeah, he's like tr- reliving trauma. Exactly. Of being shot. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's such like a smart note to play from Gray because in so many movies you would see this guy who gets shot is in the hospital. He comes back and you know he comes back and he's better than ever. He wants revenge. He's you know everything that he used to be, if not more. But here. It's just so much more honest and like difficult to reckon with that like for that character that he he can't fully go back to what he was before that he is like completely traumatized by this experience that he sees that happen he's in that moment where he has to be the hero and he just freezes completely and then after that in the end we see that he takes a desk job instead and right. like I just I think that's such a great note, and that's something that I really love in that in that yeah Marsh climax that I didn't really maybe pay enough attention to before. Yeah, it's one that I'll probably go back to again. I'm sure and, and feel even more strongly about. But as I, as I was watching, I'm just like, yeah, this is this is really great, and I don't know why people are kind of like ho hum and just kind of like eh. Yeah. Like so, most of the reviews I saw were just kind of dismissive about it. It's like, oh, it's just another one of those types of movies, another, yeah. you know, cop story or whatever. And I was just kind of like, no, there's there's a lot more <laughs> going on, I think. And oh, let's talk about wow. Now let's talk to lovers. <laughs> it's a movie done by James Gray. Sorry, sorry, I was listening. I was listening to Phil Collins and Philip Bailey sing "Easy Lover." And it, and the, yeah, it just kind of popped in there like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Yeah, I apologize. Not? No, no, no. You know, it happens. It happens. I, I used to do parody songs all the time. So, <laughs> uh, I, so I adore love stories about broken people. <laughs> um, the setup to this was just like, oh boy. I mean, the first time I saw it too. I mean, this was probably when I went. Um, okay, okay. I'm, I'm. I want to see what James Gray does from here. And he certainly has surprised me where he goes from here. But this movie in particular, when the year it came out, I was just like, everybody, let me tell you about two lovers. Let me tell you about this movie. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. wow. It's so good. And uh, it's still, <laughs> it still packs a punch and maybe even more. So the more experience you have with relationships, but um, yeah. no, I mean, Get, get, give me Joaquin in anything. Well, except for Joker, but certainly <laughs> we. I think um, we'll just we'll just put this in cement that yeah, this is possibly his best performance, and it's a it's a story loosely based on Dostoevsky. Yeah, I know that original story was made into another movie way back that I I, I, I would be curious to see, but yeah, I won't bury the lead. This is my favorite James Gray movie. Uh, there we go. <laughs> It, it, it makes me cry. I I don't know. Um, and anything that has to do with somebody not being able to deal with, yeah, divorce or the loss of a relationship. I mean, they're just like, I'm. That's it. I'm out. I'm done. I can't handle this. Yeah, I I feel that. I'm sure yeah. most people who've gone through a really intense breakup will feel something. Uh, but yeah, this is another complex character who's, again, kind of this sort of grown-up child in a way because like he's kind of driven at times by this impulsive behavior and frustration and restlessness uh and 
I don't know, for for my money, like one of the most relatable of all of Joaquin Phoenix's characters because you kind of go, yeah, there have been times where I was a little reckless, especially in my 20s, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, did things I'm not necessarily proud of. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think there is just really a lot to talk about with this movie. I mean, going, you know, certainly he's experiencing a, a, a breakdown to the point of having to live with his you know, parents again, and uh, his his little side hobby of, f- of photography is really fascinating because even early on he's like, oh, people can look at them; they don't have to be in them too. When he's just taking these <laughs> photos of landscapes or whatever, and yeah. uh, no, but this just feels like a a doomed love song of a movie where it's like, yes, there's romance and melancholy and defeatism and desire, and it's all just kind of wove together in a way that's very sincere. I think every performance is excellent. I Like we talked about earlier with Paltrow and uh, Vanessa Shaw, that might be their best performances for me. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely for me. Yeah, and, you know, Isabella Rossellini can play... She's great. You know, thoughtful, compassionate mom and things like this and Villeneuve's enemy and just yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, it, do it with such grace. Um, no, I... I, I just love this movie so much, and it's it's again one of those. It's hard to summarize everything that I feel watching it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, me too. I so it came out when I was nineteen, and so I I don't I think We Own the Night was still at that time the only James Gray movie I had seen. I probably hadn't rewatched it to like appreciate it yet at the time. So like I watched this and was really just totally caught off guard and blown away by how much it resonated for me. I think I was in a very uh, similar position as you where like I um, were just really really related to this character in such a way like I totally especially like not only the like social awkwardness and that like and just yeah really clumsily like being just so alone and but then this like idealization that he has mm-hmm. for Gwyneth Paltrow's character and earlier at the beginning of the episode you kind of mentioned um this like when she's introduced this fear of her becoming this like manic pixie dream girl kind of character and it's it really i feel like the movie does such a great job of portraying her as what that kind of character actually would be in real life if you actually got to know her where it's like she's so like broken and like she is trying to figure out her own shit just like everybody else is and he is putting all of this idealization on her to where he's not even seeing her as a real person. And she, he, he and she's putting idealization on Elias Coteas too. Yeah. That's what's yeah, yeah. kind of amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And like he, like, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix for her is the Vanessa Shaw for him where it's like, yeah, you have, you know, this great person who really wants to be with you for like who you are. That's like right there and you're not appreciating it. I mean, I guess, Joaquin doesn't want to be with Gwyneth for who she actually is because he doesn't know who she actually is. And she keeps saying that to him. And like there there's like the scenes where he's like telling her that he loves her and it's just so uncomfortable because it's like, bro, no, you, no, you don't. don't. Yeah. You really like, don't. You, nope. you don't have a clue <laughs> who she is. And yeah, like that that push and pull between, you know, the life that is actually gonna be fulfilling for you but that you don't understand is like right in front of you because you have these like moon eyes for this thing that you're just idealizing 
is I think so relatable, especially for me. Yeah, like in my like twenties and everything, where I was like single and like just trying to like figure it out and had this these like romantic ideas from movies and whatever of what love and relationships and everything are supposed to be. And like I just I saw so much of myself in that character in a way that was like, yeah, it, I mean it just this movie brings me to tears every single time that I watch it. And something that I really loved. Um, reading about with Gray where he would he talked a lot in like interviews and stuff that I was reading about him being really socially awkward and he mentioned that at one point he was living in this apartment building that was like adjacent to an apartment building that Sofia Coppola was living in and he could like they they had never met before so they didn't they weren't like friends or anything but he could see her like on like her balcony or like through her like window when he was out on his balcony and he would like hear her like playing the harp and like stuff like that and then (laughs) he like ran into her at some like media event like party thing or at like a film festival or something and he was like oh hey Sofia Coppola I can see you through my apartment window Oh, no. <laughs> he's like and he described it as like being the most mortifying like social like faux pas of his entire life that he like Aww. said that to her and that he just like went home and like hung his head in shame and has like never like forgiven himself for it and that's exactly what Joaquin's character like I mean beyond the fact that like literally he is you know gazing at her through the apartment windows in the same way so I wonder if that was kind of an inspiration for Gray with that, but like that, that social awkwardness of Phoenix's character feels so real and like is again mm-hmm. something that I relate to so much. This, like, he just has this like energy and this like desire to please, and he's not like entirely like he has these really positive qualities to him. Like, I th- when they go out at night, um, when he goes out with Paltrow and like her friends to the nightclub, and he's like doing the dancing and everything and he's like really fun and like everybody's having like a fun time with him and they really enjoy him and everything and he's telling these like kind of like awkward jokes but like people are enjoying them <laughs> um it's just like this like des- this innate desire to please um everybody at like all costs and it comes off in a way that is like sort of endearing but also sort of like yeah nobody is really gonna like desire this person because they just seem like too desperate in a way and i just feel like i relate to that so much (laughs) oh totally no i mean especially in my 20s there were times where i'd just randomly go out with people late at night or whatever and i don't necessarily maybe i went to a club once in a while yeah it wasn't my favorite thing to do but i think it was more of just like oh this person wants to do this thing so i'm gonna do it even if it's not exactly i normally would do so I relate to that for sure. And yet, like now watching it, I'm like, I, I can't help but think as somebody who was once, you know, an aspiring therapist. I'm like, oh, I think you're off your meds. You might be manic. Be careful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. You know? So there's, like, yeah, there's just, just that that tricky balance there that he pulls off in this character where it's like, oh, yeah, I want him. To, I want to see him have a good time. I want to see him, you know, succeed in, in a relationship. But part of me does get frustrated with him because I'm like, yeah, Vanessa Shaw is there. Yeah, she she wants she wants to be with you. I mean, I don't even know if it's intention like entirely clear as to why she's so drawn towards him. Yeah, and maybe that, that's a big question that mark be that a, bugs yeah. people. Yeah, that's true. That I didn't really think about that, but that 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 is a good point. That might be a little bit of a 
maybe we could have used a little bit more there. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not saying like when we need more scenes of them, you know, being romantic in you know the traditional way or something. But it's it's hard to get as clear of a read. But I find that interesting, and in, and in, again in, in its ambiguity, that. Oh, I'm not exactly sure why there's, you know, they're so into one another. They just kind of are. And maybe it's just the right place, the right time. Or, yeah. you know, she kind of feels lost and he feels lost. So maybe that's why they're going like, to succeed. Yeah. She has this like familial expect. They both have this like familial expectation where it's like their parents are yes, very yeah. aggressively putting the two of them together. Oh, that scene with the, oh, with the, the, the dry cleaner manager yeah. guy where he's like, you know, this is going to be perfect for your life. Basically. <laughs> Like, if you do this thing, your life will be set from this point on. I'm just like, oh, come on, the pressure. Good God, I couldn't handle that. I'd just be like... I don't know, man. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think think that's the thing. That's, like, one of the things, too, that's, like, pretty... um, Just well drawn out with Phoenix's character. It's like, yeah, I suppose that he would kind of pull away a little bit when it's, like... Like, you mentioned about um, Rossellini's performance and, like, that character. She is... It, it she captures that perfect cross section of like a mother mm. who is really like caring and supportive and like genuinely loves her kid but is also a little bit too like nagging a little bit too like overbearing and so yeah. you can like pull away from but that with a good intention bit. with good exactly exactly it's like not it's like a flaw that comes from a good place. And like, especially, I mean, she knows that like her son is going through such a traumatic time. He just had this divorce through like a divorce that happened from like awful reasons because like the, it was like his wife and him have this like rare, like recessive thing where like if they had a kid, the kid would be born with like a really severe disability or something like that. And then like the, so her parents, like basically pressured her to leave him because they like couldn't have kids together and Mm -hmm. so like you understand how he would spiral because of that and then like the film more or less opens with a suicide attempt that he doesn't acknowledge as a suicide attempt but like his mom knows that you know oh yeah that's a fear that's something that's going on there and yeah like it's Again, like it's such. You kind of have a, to be overprotective in that exactly. situation in exactly. a way. You know, like, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, yeah, and, and it makes sense. Like they're heavily monitoring him in yeah. some cases, and just like trying to get him to socialize a bit more. But no, there's just a lot of imperfect humanity in this movie that it feels very real, and you understand where people are coming from, even when they're being selfish. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> yeah. It's it's a great movie at like people's flaws are human flaws. Nobody is like a bad person except for maybe Elias Cotillas' character is <laughs> probably a bad person. <laughs> yeah, he's a rich white dude. Yeah. So yeah. he's just like on his look wife. at me. <laughs> yeah, that too, and then suddenly he's like, Oh, I'm just gonna leave my wife and yeah, everything will yeah, be fine. Yeah, exactly. So he, he kinda sucks. His his mistress yeah. has uh, an abortion and he's like not even there and oh, like, comes over too. in the middle oh. of the night and is like, oh, we, I can only be here for like 30 minutes. I got to get on a plane for work tomorrow. <laughs> like, oh, good Lord. What a douchebag. But I, I think Paltrow is so, like uh, such a great performance. And, you know, talking about 
um, Tom Cruise and wishing that he would do, you know, more mm-hmm. dramatically heavy work. Like this is Paltrow, not like an actor that I generally gravitate towards. I like, I really like her in Shakespeare in Love. I like her in Emma. Like I like some of the stuff that she did in like the '90s and everything. But this is a performance that like I never would have imagined she had in her. And this in Hard Eight. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hard Eight. Yeah, fantastic. Similar, in Hard Eight. Similar. Yeah, 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 totally. And like, I would, oh God, I would love to see her do stuff like this again. No kidding. Oh, no, I mean, good Lord, this movie. It's, uh, it's really special. I, I'd be very happy if, um, you know, he kind of goes back into this territory. And it sounds like, you know, wait, jumping way ahead, but it sounds like his his new movie for 2022 yeah. is leaning more towards the personal, intimate character studies. Yeah, definitely. He's going back to it. Being, Yeah, being very autobiographical. So yeah. can't wait for that. <laughs> I know I'm going to be first in line for Armageddon time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a good rhyming scheme. It worked out pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the Immigrant. The, the first film to be shot on Ellis Island. Yeah, that was but, crazy. I, I didn't know that until yeah. today. Doing doing some last minute research either. on it. Um, that was that was really fascinating. What was the? They tried to do the Godfather Part Two, I think, on it, or like Coppola tried to shoot uh, something. Yeah. And they turned him down because it like just wasn't right. in good enough shape. And he was like, "I'll pay. I'll pay to like reconstruct all of Ellis Island." And they were just like, "Uh, <laughs> no." <laughs> Yeah, let's 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 see. Uh, yeah, James Gray branch out a little bit, get out, get someone out of his comfort zone because this isn't this isn't a modern piece this time. Mm-hmm. He described it as kind of like a verissimo opera written for an actress inspired by Buccini, and at times it looks like to me as if it were shot by Gordon Willis, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that gets a, that gets a big old thumbs up from me. And stories revolving around. <sighs> I guess codependency mm. <laughs> managed to always at least uh, unnerve me and, you know, certainly make me worry for the, the main character. Like, oh, don't get so attached to that person because I don't think it's going to be good for you. Right. Yeah. Um, that sort of dynamic is, you know, it's always been there. Certainly relationships have been built around that unfortunate dynamic. But, uh, you know, and this is a, one of those portrayals of how somebody can be crushed under an idea of what the American dream can be when you come here and being so idealistic about it. But, it, you know, and, and again, somebody having good intentions despite doing unfortunate things that they don't necessarily want to do. Uh, it's it's a really great movie that, again, I'm a little surprised that people are just kind of like, eh, it was all right. Yeah. I, th- I think it's actually pretty great. I'm, again, this keeps coming up <laughs> throughout uh, his work, but there's an actor that shows up, you know, p- partially halfway that I'm just not quite as into. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Renner yeah. as a wide-eyed magician. The Mark, the Mark Wahlberg like, role of this one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I'm just kind of like, oh. Yeah, I almost I don't know like if that character char- works for me. The character almost works for me because he is like, um, uh, because he's like presented as the like savior of her mm-hmm. and then he turns out to kind of be a piece of shit in his own right and everything sure so, like it sure. almost works for me in like the bait and switch of it but yeah i just runner's not a great 
actor and so i don't think that he quite when you when you go from like the scenes of cotillard and phoenix yeah going back and forth to then like renner being in the mix it's like uh a little bit of which of these don't belong (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly i don't know yeah i don't know if i'll ever be on on team renner it's it's like the I guess I'm very forgiving about his line in Arrival, but I, it's terrible <laughs> when he says, do you want to make a baby with me or whatever he uh, says? But uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but let's face it. Cotillard, astonishing. Astonishing. And just, and just about anything and everything. And just one of those actresses that lights up the screen that, you know, is clamoring for your attention and gets it it just like here you go i'm i'm here for you i'm you're gonna i'm gonna carry this story (laughs) along and she does so in a way that very few can accomplish and of course joaquin phoenix playing a a different role than we expect because i don't know yeah he's it's hard to get a good read on his intentions here for sure and i think that's what carries it yeah, that the scene, uh, you know, I mean, jumping ahead to the the very end of the film, like his his like acknowledgement of his own like flaws and his own sins and the horrific mm-hmm. ways that he's abused and manipulated this character and like saying that she should hate him and everything and like we can't as an audience can't really disagree with that, but he's doing it like the performance is so like heartfelt that it still is like heartbreaking to watch that performance and by by both of them and again like like his work in the yards i think that he brings this humanity to a character who very very easily could have been inhuman and it's it speaks so much to uh, his qualities as an actor and what like you know i think through all of their work together like the the two of them gray and phoenix is like one of if not the best like actor director pairing um like right now that we have that we've had in the last like 20 years and there's definitely not enough appreciation for phoenix's performance in his films but the two of them just like get each other in a way that really blows my mind yeah i know and you know again it's a story that you kind of expect where it's going to go from a to b to c but Right. Where it ends up, especially like you mentioned in the final scene, um, is it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. And, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm happy to put my hands together when I see a scene or a, a shot like the final one we get where they're each walking oh away. Oh, God, that final shot. Separately. That final uh, shot is like one of the best shots in any movie, period. <laughs> I know, right? I was just kind of like, holy crap. I mean,. There's a, a lot of great moments throughout this movie, and I think ending it on that note is just like chef's kiss, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And um, it's his first time working with Darius Kanji as the cinematographer, and they did yeah. Lost City of Z together as well, and I think that, yeah, they... And it is like this, you know, we're talking about him moving into a different kind of milieu with, like, what he's doing and his first period piece and everything, and, the, yeah, the two of them just capture... It feeling like a movie, like uh, some sort of like lost relic that was just discovered that has mm-hmm. been like buried for decades and you just like unearthed it and we're like watching a film that was made back during, you know, the period that it took place. And I think that it is 
like it's astonishing that he could pull that off because it just really feels so true to life and like so um it doesn't feel like a film made right now about that period even from like the acting styles i know that he talked about like cotillard being uh someone that he thought of like maria falconetti from passion of joan of arc and like having such an expressive face and being able to take this like emotion and her conveying it without needing dialogue and without needing all of that and i think that that's exactly what you get with her and i think that it's like the the fact that she had this and um two days one night in the same year which i think are probably her two best performances and like two very different performances too like it's she's yeah just an incredible incredible actor yeah I, i i think i had read that um I think it was from slant magazine that this film feels like um like rossellini's collaborations with ingrid bergman oh yeah for sure and i hadn't thought of that i was just like oh yeah yeah and cotillard ingrid Ber- oh yeah yeah <laughs> i could totally see that <laughs> you know and, and again it's not like calling attention to oh this is my homage to that specifically yeah. it just has that feel and that's I, I, the I'm, thing it doesn't feel artificial it doesn't feel self-conscious right. in that way where it feels like such a direct like i am doing this it just, yeah it feels it feels natural and authentic so totally and you mentioned when we first started that i don't know how some directors pull that off to not make it feel like a pastiche right or something. Yeah. you know and i i I'd like to know the secret. (laughs) I'd like more directors to sort of follow in that same uh, framework because most of the time it does feel self-aware or most of the time it is like, Oh, look at what I'm doing or look at this. (laughs) Certainly somebody like Tarantino, maybe to a fault. One could argue does that. Or like you think of, um, I mean, one of my favorite directors, but Soderbergh doing the good German is like, Oh, exactly that where it just feels like, uh, like almost obnoxious um like how much he's just like draping it in with where it just feels so artificial that this yeah does not does not have that quality to it at all i kind of wish james gray would work as much as soderbergh does i would, would yeah, yeah yeah i would love that <laughs> And I, I do love me some Soderbergh. Don't get me wrong. One, one of my favorite directors in the world. Um, but that that's not one of his finer moments. <laughs> No, <laughs> no. And it's, it's, again, you'd be, you'd be surprised. Like, oh, Cape Blanchett, perfect for for that. I was world. so excited for that movie when it came out. I was so mm. pumped, but yeah, this disappointment. <laughs> I even like to this day, like I I've revisited it a couple of times because I'm like, what's not that bad, right? And it's it's honestly not that bad. It's like, it's not. Oh no, it's, it's not, not a terrible movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It's it's fine. It's just. Compared to what I was hoping it was going to be and what you generally expect from Soderbergh, even as somebody who makes like a movie a year and is just consistently knocking out of the park, it definitely, yeah, is, is on the lower half of his filmography for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to scream out, pots and pans, pots and pans. <laughs> uh, for The Lost City of Z... <sighs> so my first experience watching this was a little unfortunate in that it was not I haven't gone back to this theater because I had a bad experience with the projection and the oh, sound wow. and I was just kind of like come on seriously guys this is, 
you work at a movie theater and you're not making sure this is completely up to par. I don't know if because of it being shot in 35, I don't know what the deal was. But it, it's, it was a disappointing theatrical experience for me to where I'm like, well, I definitely have to go back and watch it again because not everything sounded the way it should have or maybe some shots weren't framed properly. And, you know, I, of course, complained to the theater owner and was like, <laughs> hey, what's the deal here? But um, it's an old school adventure epic that, you know, again, some, some somewhat of a endangered species these days we don't see a lot of stories told like this mm. we no longer see explorers on the big screen in the in the in the sense of like oh this is indiana jones-esque or something but it's a little bit more than that again it's about wanting to document hubris and madness and having a heart of darkness but it's also like this lead character isn't necessarily that either he again has good intentions i feel yeah uh but once, once again, we do have a you know kind of a self-contained story that does touch on family and fathers and sons and having an internal conflict. Uh, but yeah, for some reason, I, I don't know why I don't get as moved by these next couple films when clearly they have elements that normally do work on me on a deeper level. Yeah. So, so I don't know if it is just because he is so out of his comfort zone, or he's at least really reaching for something else and and he should i'm not saying like oh just make movies like two lovers all the time right. please he should really try other things and venture into other genres and certainly be ambitious you know clearly one of his favorite movies is apocalypse now and they <laughs> sort of fit <laughs> these next two movies yeah that uh, makes sense especially why the next one, but yeah. yeah i don't know um hunnam here uh i feel like he's just fine and not remarkable in a way that I feel like a character like this should be. Like, it should be a... Well, you know, I'm not saying big or whatever, but it's just... It didn't stand out for me in the same way that, like, uh, Robert Pattinson, good God, I just want him to be the lead in everything. And, and especially around this time, I'm just... Give me more Pattinson, and he, he's here he comes. He's just going to keep on trucking in the way that I was thoroughly surprised by post-Twilight uh, era. Yeah. So... He's he's the standout here for me, and I think a lot of people point that out too. As opposed to Hunnam, do you like Charlie Hunnam in this movie in general? I, I guess that's the, my main question. I <laughs> I do really like him in this movie. I okay, cool. I so I'm I'm kind of I I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a Charlie Hunnam defender, but I liked him from an early age. I I like him in Sons of Anarchy a lot. I really liked him in um, the Judd Apatow, um, I think Paul Feig show, Undeclared, which is like a oh that's right yeah college comedy. He's really good in that. Um, But I I feel like people, whether it's him or Hollywood or whatever, just haven't been able to like figure out where he fits and like right. Pacific Rim, I like. It's a movie I kind of like, but I don't think he's a good fit in that at all. Um, King Arthur, kind of the same thing, um, mm-hmm. and like him trying to be like that Hollywood leading man, just like I don't think really works. But here, I just really buy him in this role, and I really feel like he he captures it well. And it's interesting that it was like initially supposed to be Pitt, Brad Pitt playing the lead here. Um, obviously, Plan B produced. I can it. see that. And then, like, <laughs> he, him, and Gray, just like decide, like thought that it should be somebody British. 
um, playing the role, which I don't know if that means that Pitt just didn't feel like he could do the accent or <laughs> what. <laughs> but then it was supposed to be Benedict Cumberbatch for like a long time, and he was like locked in. Ooh. And then his wife got pregnant, so he like backed out. So then like Hunnam came in as like the third choice, and I I really think that he just captures this guy really well. It's again like such an interesting character, and like. Again, the father and son thing happens because this is so this yes. Lost City of Z is the only like s- specifically true story. Like, there are other films that um, Gray has done that are like loosely inspired by autobiographical elements and everything, but this is the only one that's based on actual people who actually existed. And Percy Fawcett, the character that Hunter was playing, his dad was like a notorious gambler who kind of like ruined the reputation of the family. And oh yeah, he spent like two family fortunes. Or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly it. And so like, and we, when we see in like earlier at the beginning of the film, uh, Fawcett has this like great discovery, this great um, adventure, and comes back with like you know great stuff, and but doesn't get the credit that he fully deserves for it. Doesn't get like the pats on the back that he fully deserves for it because the reputation of the family is so low. And so it is like this guy who has so many reasons for doing what he's doing because he wants to one, like reclaim the family name. He has this like Mm. bruised, like pride from what his father did to him and from feeling like he's like this outsider. But the thing that I find most compelling about Lost City of Z is almost um, dissecting it from a level of like, what the artist is maybe even subconsciously doing where because it's a film that is about like a guy trying to against all odds discover and go on this unbelievable quest that nobody believes that he can do for this thing that nobody believes exists and like literally nobody is believing in him and but he is just so determined by like his passion and his belief in the mission and the cause that he has to go and do it like at all costs and it just feels so much to me like that's what James Gray is basically doing anytime he's making a film because he's still trying to make these kind of films in the system Mm. that we're living in now and especially coming off of The Immigrant, which, like, The Immigrant is still his favorite film of his, like, the one that he loves the most. And it was completely sandbagged by Weinstein, who bought it without having seen it. Like, Gray was basically begging the producers not to sell the movie to Weinstein because he had worked with him before on The Yards, as we said, and had a terrible experience with that. And Weinstein bought it because he's Weinstein, heard, you know, that there were good performances in it, thought he could get Cotillard an Oscar nomination. Then he saw the movie, didn't like it, and wanted, like, tried to force James Gray to change the ending to make the ending this, like, sound of music kind of thing of Cotillard and her sister, like, going to L.A., like, crossing over this field and having this voiceover narration where Cotillard and voiceover the film ends with her saying... I made it, I made it. And like, that's what Weinstein was like insisting the ending be. And James Gray, oh thankfully, God. at least had final cut. So like said, absolutely fucking not. You're not doing that. But then because he wouldn't budge on it, Weinstein released the film in like a hundred theaters in the middle of summer. And 
like completely yeah, he sabotaged it for yeah, sure. Yeah. Completely destroyed any chance of it. And it's still mm. it still made like two million dollars just based on like how good it is. Um, despite being, yeah, like completely sandbagged by Weinstein. So Gray has talked about like after that happened, he was just so disheveled and so defeated that he got like suicidal because of it because he just felt like he couldn't make like he made what he thought was his masterpiece and like his the thing that he was like born to make and nobody saw it and nobody believed in it and he just like fell apart yeah and i remember him saying like he was even just struggling to pay the bills yeah 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 yeah, too. yeah exactly that, and unreal yeah and so like him then taking on this film after that feels so much like that that's such like a metaphor right and <laughs> and like going and doing it in like he's always been a guy who shoots on location this is the first film that he made that didn't shoot in new york and they went mm-hmm. to like i th- columbia i think is where they shot like all the jungle stuff and they shot it all on film because he shot every single one of his movies on film which like he said that shooting it on film in the jungle was like a in order to get it out of the jungle to like the processing facilities and everything, it had to be on like, it had to take like three plane trips every day just to like get there. And so he was like always anxious that something was going to happen that was going to destroy the film. But then he later, like they still had laptops and stuff on set obviously. And like later his like Mac that he had on set stopped working completely because of the humidity of the jungle. So if they were shooting on digital, it probably would have gone worse. And like, Oh it's my just, God. it's such like an adventure. I mean, you, you mentioned like we mentioned Apocalypse Now and like the making of the film totally, obviously not to the extent of Apocalypse Now, right. but it definitely feels like people doing that kind of a thing where it is like the, the kind of movie that people aren't making these days. He, he talked about like preparing for it and being scared. I think before they went to go make it, he was like, I really hope this isn't my fix Caraldo. And like, <laughs> I, I was definitely thinking Herzog, of course. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, for sure. Like Aguirre mixed with like Fitz Caraldo mm-hmm. feels totally like what this movie is. And like Charlie Hunnam. I like what you're saying. I like what you're saying about it. Like him seeing himself in yeah. the Fawcett character. Yeah, I think, yeah. I don't know if I would, like I think that I would still really love it. I don't know if I would love it as much if, if, if I wasn't seeing it through that kind of authorial lens of it as well. Yeah. No, that's a good call when, you know, it's kind of, kind of a completely different beast altogether, but I guess I've, I appreciated inception more when I thought of it as a metaphor for filmmaking. Sure. Right. And yeah, that, yeah, like yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio is the director, yeah. you know, and <laughs> even looks a little bit like Christopher Nolan. Yeah. So weirdly. So I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, it added another layer to like my rewatch of that movie made me go, Oh, there probably is a lot going on in this movie other than it just being, you know, this crazy escapist adventure about people who can invade each other's dreams and stuff. There's something deeper going on. And maybe that's now that you've brought that up, I almost want to watch lost city of Z again. (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm making it happen. I'm bringing you around. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, and, I, and that's the thing is like even my star rating, I'm I'm like, uh, I don't know if I really think it's a three point five. I think it's probably like a three point seven five, leaning <laughs> on a four. Um, and that, that's you know that's arbitrary stuff. But at the same time, yeah, I guess I I'm 
I, once we get to the father and son stuff, oh yeah, it's yeah brilliant. And you know, and it's not to say like I don't like when they're actually in the jungle and Robert Pattinson, you know, and 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 Charlie Hunnam do make a good team together. I like their I really interplay like them together. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that, that that's. I don't know if I was as thrilled with the inevitability of that um, uh, Angus McFadden's character, the the explorer with all the financial yeah. resources it's and a good power performance, and all that. But it's it's very telegraphed yeah. where it's going with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I kind of figured out like, oh well, this is going to happen and it's not going to go well, and then. Yeah. You know, but then it all kind of comes around with that scene where he's just like, I'm not apologizing to you. I'm apologizing oh, to my men. Such a great scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. no, there are great moments or great scenes. Um, and certainly just, oh, here comes the white man. I got he's got to do he's going to do what he's going to do. Yeah. And he's going to come out and be like, hey, I want to discover this for myself or at least, you know, and I don't think he's that selfish of a character. But at the same time. He can't help himself. He yeah. can't help but like say, "Well, sorry, family. I'm doing this. I don't care." Yeah, <laughs> I think that that's like one of the most fascinating things about the film is is navigating the like colonialism kind of aspect mm-hmm. of it, where like because he he is pushing back against the like white superiority of like his peers, who like he comes back yeah. saying that like this civilization. I found, you know, signs that this civilization has existed and is, like, intelligent and, you know, they've made, you know, they've constructed their own ways of understanding and, like, communicating and they've made pots and pans, as you said, as we transitioned into this. And, like, it's it's an intelligent civilization. Like, years, hundreds of years, possibly, before England, you know, figured their stuff out and constructed their own civilization and people... Uh, like his peers are so offended by that, of course, because only white yeah. men could be the ones who figured it out. And he, he's really advocating that, like, no, like this is, you know, just because they are not white doesn't mean that they are in any way inferior to us. If anything, they are equal mm-hmm. or superior to us. But at the same time, he is like, like it's, it's, it's so interesting because he his desire is to go there in like an archaeological kind of way to discover that they exist so that the world knows that they exist and to just like learn about this civilization and this community and everything. But at the same time, you are still a white dude going into a place that like you do not belong in and like going there for, you know, like is, is there really any altruistic like motive that you could possibly have because you as an outsider, you are going and disrupting the natural order of things there. So, like, I think that dynamic is so interesting to, like, reflect on and consider. And the movie definitely, like, I think James Gray does a good job of we can, like, ask ourselves those questions and, like, have those conversations about it. But he doesn't try to, like, push the the point too much because it's not, like, the movie's not about that, certainly Fawcett wasn't thinking about that and having conversations about that specifically. So like trying to put that conversation more so in the movie wouldn't really fit. But I think it's just there enough that if we want right. to make a conversation point out of it when like reflecting on the film, we can. And I think I think that's really well done. I agree. And yeah, I think 
you know, yeah, my my initial thought is like, well, just let them be. Exactly. I mean, that's you know? yeah, just that's hundred percent my thought. <laughs> let them exist. You don't necessarily need to, you know, proclaim to the world. Guess what? They exist yeah. and they're here. And look at all the things that they did. And yeah. let's document every little thing. And you know, but it, and it's very sensitive to you know the indigenous tribe portrayed. There's thoughtful yeah. reflection on why. You mentioned that these men feel the need to, to go there and then why perhaps, you know, Fawcett wants to bring his son, even if there's risks, yeah. clearly. And we also don't know <laughs> what's become of them in the end, leaving a lot Oof. of questions. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really another God, another great final shot. Yeah. Oh um, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with the wife, with her going yeah. into the jungle. I think uh, that's the, the two of that. Those two final shots like blow mm-hmm. my mind. And I think it speaks. It speaks too to what how good that characterization of Sienna Miller's character is here, where she is not just the doting wife or the the angry wife who's resentful of the fact that her husband keeps leaving. Like she is that, but she also is her own human being and i love that like she's the one who discovered like the the letter that she discovers of like the, a previous expedition that found you know similar signs of these civilizations like she's the one who found it and she is as much of like an intelligent capable person as he is and they have that kind of fight where she is like demanding that she goes with him and he's like insisting that it's no place for a woman, not because he doesn't believe that she is capable of it, but because like almost like socially, societally, like it wouldn't like she couldn't um I guess not fit in is like not the right word, but like there are things that would hold her back from being able to just like socially exist Mm. in the same way that he is like she doesn't have the privilege that he does to be able to do the things that he's doing and it's like almost practical but it is still also kind of misogynistic and like (laughs) but her having that that agency and like autonomy that she has is so different than i think you would expect in a movie like this and even sienna miller's talked about like She's played characters like that before, like Foxcatcher and American Sniper a few years before this are her playing that exactly right. that role twice in the same year. Yeah. And she was so like invigorated by working with James Gray on this and his kind of care for the actors and his interest in that character and allowing her to flesh that character out as much as she does. There's a lot of thoughtful and careful consideration to her character just in the same way that he does with the main character of Fawcett. Exactly. I think that's really telling of, yeah, his strengths. And certainly it's, it's interesting to me too, because like I mentioned, anything having to do with fathers and sons is like an easy cry for me. And sure. it's just weird to me that I don't get as emotionally swept up in that moment between father and son here. And in the next movie we'll be talking about, <laughs> but I, I, I think Maybe I'm just being a grumpy grump when I'm watching these movies. Who knows? But at the same time, hmm, maybe there hasn't been as much established between the father and son in a way that, I mean, I guess it's it's hard to put into words why it doesn't necessarily entirely work for me, even though clearly that, that whole speech he gives to his son, I think, is gorgeously well-written. It's just like, we know so little of this world, but 
you and I have made a journey that not other men can even imagine, and it's given an understanding to our hearts. I'm just like, oh my god, <laughs> it's just that's that's great. I mean, again, one can argue it's like oh, it's a little hokey, a little sentimental, but. I it, that works for me, and certainly yeah. the 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 sentiment of like I love you know they don't we don't know what's going to become of these two characters, and it's again one of those films that ends. And I'm just like I feel the weight of everything that's happened, uh, but I'm also not like moved in the same way that I am with two lovers, and that just could be sure. my own fault. <laughs> no, I th- I think that there is like a the like emotionality of this film is more reserved. Um, yes. So I, I can Reserved. see that, Perfect. and yeah. I th- I think that I adore this film, but I certainly don't think that I emotionally connect with it as much as I do to lovers. So I I can definitely see having that kind of distance from it. So I want to talk about the final film from James Gray. Well, at least in terms of the ones we've seen, yes. we'll be seeing his latest one for sure later this year, but. I'm going to let you tell me why Ad Astra is your favorite James Gray movie. Yeah, let's go. I'm not going to I'm not going to start I'm not going to start the rambling this time. I want it to be all about you. Yeah, so I um interestingly Ad Astra when I saw it in theaters is the one James Gray film that I didn't quite connect with. I I did feel too distanced from it and this like like I appreciated a lot of what it was doing. Um, I just like I love him as a filmmaker and I think that there's a lot of interesting choices made here especially in the journey itself that we take I think that the like rover chase on uh, the moon is like incredible Uh, like Mad Max Fury (laughs) Road on the moon like yeah sign me up and like I think little touches about what the world would look like at this point, the the idea of like the Virgin Mobile sponsored um, like <laughs> astronaut flight is, to the moon is incredible. I think that's of exactly, course there's a subway on the moon. Yeah, like of that course. is that is exactly the reality of you know what this would be. Um, but I, I for some reason I didn't connect like I the reservedness of it just didn't get there for me the first time that I was seeing it and like I just felt like I didn't I was like uh what he like wants to find his dad like whatever um (laughs) and it just yeah it didn't it didn't lock in for me but over the last like three years um since I had seen it in theaters so watching it a couple weeks ago was my first time seeing it since then I I've done a lot of reflecting on my own relationship with my father, who is like a very reserved uh, person who like I don't have mm-hmm. a strong emotional connection with. And I feel like I am also a pretty like reserved person. And I feel like I maybe have gotten that from him and from some of the like difficulties in our relationship and like feeling like I had to like keep my emotions uh like to myself and have had difficulty in my life like connecting with other people because of that and sure i feel like going through a lot of therapy and kind of discovering that about myself and seeing how that like clashes in my own relationships with other people even in like my long-term now relationship with my current partner where like one of our biggest issues is me being too closed off and so like watching this now I the same way that I did watching two lovers like I felt like I saw so much of myself in this character and this idea of him 
just being so internalized that he's kind of like almost checked out and even when his you know wife is leaving him he can't muster up the strength to ask her not to and he just feels like he can't he's like putting on this performance whenever he is trying to interact with people and like he's so like calm and even even in like total crisis but because of that he's not like engaging with the world and i just saw so much of myself in that and you like compare that too with what's going on with tommy lee jones's character who takes on this journey to find life out there and that is like this Mm. thing that we're all thinking about often but it's it more than that it's like him that's like his passion and his drive and his goal in life and his his like core being is rooted in that and he gets out there and he finds that we're just totally alone and it's like then he has to figure out what to do with that and then brad pitt's character has to figure out what to do with that when he finds out that idea of you know we're all we've got so like now what is like it it really just sunk into me watching it this time around that like the hopelessness the like isolation the distancing from everyone and everything around this character and his inability to connect with life like hit me in a way now that it just didn't in 2019 because i don't think i was in touch with myself enough at the Mm -hmm. time and so so then like other things like the the voiceover in the film i really didn't like the first time that i saw it i know gray doesn't even necessarily like it it was like a studio note that he kind of had to put in um yeah but we'll talk about that (laughs) (laughs) but for me for some reason this time around i i actually really liked it because i felt like it brought me into that character and got me to kind of understand his perspective in a way that connected it with my own perspective because obviously in my own day-to-day life, I'm so much in my own head that like I'm having all these thoughts mm. in my own head that I'm not expressing to other people that maybe I should be expressing more to other people because maybe it would help people see me more. And so it's like even the things that I didn't quite like the first time or that I really didn't like the first time, I still was like coming around to more this time around. Um, but yeah, so how about for yourself? Is this, is this kind of like your least favorite gray or because for me it was my least favorite going into this and now yeah it's my favorite so i had like a pretty big turn on it i don't think it's my least favorite but and and let me just say listening to you talk about it was getting me emotional (laughs) and i was like oh yeah it's it's one of those cases where you wish you could just yeah give your guest a hug right and you know and 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 certain and certainly in the in the midst of a lockdown and pandemic you know the just the simple sentiment of we're all we got yeah right definitely definitely hits a little harder than it did when i first saw it and it's it's also weird that they keep mentioning the surge yeah uh, yeah in, in too, <laughs> i'm just like oh please don't talk about covid surges again and all that stuff but anyway it's just I guess the main quibble is is the is the narration the voiceover. Yeah, I think I'm not a big fan of when it is. Let me tell you what I'm feeling in this moment. I want to just see it as again show don't tell yeah. sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet I don't think it's 
as you're describing it too as more of an internal monologue of the things that he wish he could say that actually elevates it a little bit more for me to not not labeling it as a flaw mm-hmm. the way I probably would have on a first viewing uh, and I, uh, it, it's tough again the the stoicism thing can can work for me and it can't mm-hmm. and I understand that this movie is about confronting <laughs> stoicism uh, <laughs> along with you know generational conflict and the the father and son dynamic in of itself and what does it mean <sighs> Uh, the, the fear of becoming your parents yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> weighs heavy on this on this film and that's sort of what has lifted it a bit more for me on a rewatch is at least I understand that that element of it to where yeah it, I think I'm just I'm more frustrated that I don't feel a lot more during the letting go moment yeah I, and I don't know why again and maybe there is just less emphasis on it being emotional or, or melodramatic in a way that's like, okay, let's raise the score and make sure you feel it. This is not interstellar or contact. I yeah. realize that. <laughs> but <laughs> both of those movies make me cry. Good, both very good movies. I, yeah, and I know. And it's like, I know people, you know, rag on those too to some degree and I can understand why and maybe they do rely on some tricks and manipulative tactics. Sure. But in a way that works for me. Yeah, uh, me too. Max Richter's score in this He's become one of my favorite composers, like, ever. Yeah, same. So, you know, that's that's special. The cinematography is remarkable. You mentioned the uh, the chase on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's just, holy crap, on another level. Uh, and I, and, yeah, and I just, maybe it is a little slow, but not in a way that's, you know, like, I'm bored. Right. I'm not, not necessarily bored. I but will it, say, it, 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 my, I saw it in theaters with my mom, and she fell asleep during it mm-hmm. in theater so yeah i could never show this to my mom because yeah. she doesn't like science fiction anyway but still it's just like um it's a surprise for me and, and it's not to say that like i don't appreciate it or you know there's probably again one of those cases where i'll watch it a third time and it'll all come together in a way yeah. that, that it has for you and certainly hearing your perspective and your feelings about it adds a whole other like appreciation for like i'm glad this movie makes you feel what it does now for yeah. sure yeah um, I, but no i mean brad pitt's very good i just i don't know maybe him being too restrained is partially what the movie's about but i also feel like yeah show some emotion in some parts man <laughs> yeah it's it's really that paradox right of like the, yeah the intention of the thing is to be really reserved but then like how do you connect with an audience when your whole the whole premise of the film is about how this guy can't connect with anything so like <laughs> it's yeah it's it it totally makes sense why there is like that resistance or that like wall that kind of can get put up. And for me, it was totally up on that first viewing and it came down for me this time around, but obviously I can totally see how it would still be up. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to navigate. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested and fascinated by that process of trying to navigate through this movie. Yeah. As opposed to like being dismissive and be like, well, it just doesn't work. And this is what's wrong with it. Cause that's not usually how I approach movies. But in some cases there's just times where you go, well, this isn't working. And here's, here's why I don't think it works. Yeah. But here for me, I, I sense that 
it's it's I don't think it's James Grace's fault. <laughs> I, I think he's coming from a sincere place as he always does. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Brad Pitt is doing what's expected of this character. Um, and once he does meet up with Tommy Lee Jones, maybe I am expecting like, all right, let's get to the cathartic father and son feelings that you would expect that so it's, it feels like it's leading up to it yeah it's it's yeah, and, yeah. And again anticlimactic and like intentional mm-hmm. intentionally so but i feel like that yeah that just makes it even more devastating he's like hey dad his dad's like hey i never loved you or your mother or cared about you at all also we're completely alone out here also um let me go i'm, I'm not coming back with you <laughs> Yeah. Just like oh Ugh. shit. All right. <laughs> I get you no. Know, it is heartbreaking. It certainly is. And just the fact that like Brad Pitt has the, the revelation that oh I don't want to I don't want to end up like that. Yeah. That's exactly. not who. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. I actually want to be somebody that feels the the feelings that you should feel. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um. And yeah. No. That totally works as a satisfying character arc. I would say. Yeah. Uh. For, for, for Brad Pitt's character. I think, you know, and I also read in that um, IndieWire review because it was such a rave from uh, David Ehrlich that, you know, he says, um, what is it? Every stride he takes in his father's footsteps moves him further away from becoming his own man. Oh, that's interesting. And that's really <laughs> well written, first of all, but also yeah. something that, like, makes me think more deeply about this movie. And it's about becoming your own person free from what's expected of you because a lot of people are revering Tommy Lee Jones and like yeah oh my god all these accomplishments and you're the he's the reason why we're astronauts or you know yeah. explorers of and all these things and the reality is is like oh yeah he's actually a horrible person yeah right yeah and like imagine you know, just too, like abandon like, his family yeah, yeah like people constantly saying like it's an honor to like meet you because of who your father is like not right. not anything because yeah. of who you are like yeah just that's... because of your name yeah and knowing mm. knowing deep down that like you know that your dad's kind of a piece of shit <laughs> like Right. Yeah. Right. And I guess that, I guess being confronted with that is yeah, it's it's hard to and yeah, I I I'm thinking about it more and I'm I'm going to appreciate it more I think in the end for sure. Uh I I'm just I'm I'm thrilled that you love this movie and certainly have grown to appreciate it more so it gives me hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. I, and, and again, it, it it could just be a thing where it's like, oh, right place, right time. I'll watch it. Maybe it'll show on the big screen again. Certainly, that would help too. Yeah, I mean that that happens to me constantly with so many films where it's like I didn't, I just wasn't in the right place. I mean, it's even like the mood of the whatever mood you're in that day sometimes can affect yeah. like your ability to appreciate or like connect with a film. And if you watched it the next day, it would have been a totally different experience for you. So there's like so many movies out there that like I didn't fully like, and like a lot of them, sometimes I just kind of know that like the next time that I watch it, I'm going to like, when I saw Paris, Texas for the first time when I was like 17, I didn't really like it. Oh. Um, and then yeah. years kind of go by and I like remember like how I felt watching the movie, but then no kind of like the, whenever the next time I watch that is, I'm going to be blown away by it and totally be on its wavelength. And like, eventually I did watch it and it's probably in my like top 10 of all time now, Paris, Texas. And like, I just like needed it was just not the right time or place when I first saw it. 
Oh, Paris, Texas. How I love that movie. <laughs> and that's, it could be the greatest cinematography of all time. Yeah, and Robbie Mueller. A, that is my guy. That's my favorite cinematographer. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, like every single frame I want on the wall, yeah, and, like absolutely. to hang as a work of art, <laughs> you know. And no, that's 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 a great way to end things because it's you know it's very it's it's very well put in that some movies take their time yeah. with you, and they grow, and you'll you'll grow, you'll change, yeah. you know. So <laughs> again, you know, it's very possible and. I, I, I'm excited to watch it again regardless, so it's not like, oh, that one didn't work, and, you know, James Gray should go back to making movies like Two Lovers. Right, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> it's never, and I don't feel that way at all. And, and in fact, it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for Armageddon Time, obviously, but I'm just curious to see what what other genres he, he could potentially explore in yeah. the future. Would he, would he venture out of his comfort zone after Armageddon time? Who knows? I hope, I hope he keeps making movies cause I know they're just only increasingly becoming harder to make yeah. period. Yeah. It's interesting so. to me that originally, so the, the film, the gray man comes out, uh, <laughs> tomorrow, um, on Netflix, uh, that the Russo brothers directed Ryan Gosling stars in. And originally when that was like first being developed, James Gray was supposed to direct it with Brad Pitt starring oh in God. it, um, which headlines would have been wild, but like the idea of him directing something like that is like beyond the realm of comprehension to me. Um, but oh, they're gonna recruit him for a Marvel movie. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but, uh, we got to put the kibosh on that. Please. Yeah, I, I can't yeah. see that ever happening. He, uh, I was reading an interview um, with him earlier. I think it was like a profile in the New Yorker, and he was saying like, "There's a level of bullshit that the culture is now embracing," and that like the other day his doctor was poking around at, this is the quote, the other day the doctor is poking around my pancreas and he's like, you see the Avengers 2? I'm like, no. He said, why not? I'm like, I'm not nine. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't think he's going uh, to Taking after Scorsese a little bit yeah. there, yeah. I mean, there are some good Marvel movies. I'm just tired of them all. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, 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 I keep watching them, but I don't like them. So yeah. <laughs> they got they got me. Yeah, somehow. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mitchell, I can't tell you how grateful I am to finally have spoken with you after yeah. hearing you on podcasts and seeing you on Film Spotting Trivia, being amazing, reading your great reviews and interviews. I. I, I can't wait to already ne till next year because we're going to talk again without a doubt. Absolutely. Happy to come back anytime. We will figure out somebody else who doesn't in, uh, initially make a lot of sense to do an episode on and <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> but and we made sense of it. That's exactly, what's so great. Exactly. It'll you calcify know? through the process. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, we'll, we'll cross paths in the future, perhaps during our trip to the moon where we can stop by Starbucks. Exactly. We got to get And that, uh, get hopeful, 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 hopeful. Hopefully not get shot at by space pirates. Yeah. But um, <laughs> let the audience know what you're up to, how they can find you. You're, you're kind of all over the place, but uh, thankfully that's the case. True. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at itismitchell or on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Mitchell. I'm the senior editor at Letterboxd, so uh, I would appreciate if Woo! people checked out um, our editorial platform over there called Journal, where we've got a lot of cool stuff going out. I've got an interview up there recently with uh, Claire Denis for her new film. Yes. I will. So good. Hopefully by the time this comes out or soon after this comes out, I'll have an interview with uh, Julia Binoche for the same film that Aww. will be up there, who is my favorite actor of all time. So that was pretty, 
rad to speak with her. Um, no kidding. Yeah, You're... that was pretty unreal. Um, yeah, and other I write for Paste magazine a lot. Um, I write for the playlist and the film stage sometimes. So check out my stuff over there. Sweet. And of course, acting out your podcast. Acting is... out uh, weekend watch Great. list for Letterboxd. I co-host mm-hmm. um, as well. I will also start um, soon co-hosting some episodes of the main Letterboxd show. So check out that feed as well. Oh, that's great to hear. And I've enjoyed your uh, appearances on the Incinerator Patreon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Covering check the out, films of 1992. Check out the Incinerator. That's it, with Billy, Billy Ray uh, Bruton hosts that, um, who people probably know from Screen Drafts. Um, yeah, it's a very fun podcast all around <laughs> just a I wild got podcast. to talk to billy ray about a director <laughs> I, yeah. that's gotta be on the docket for next year i think yeah definitely oh i love I, I love what he does and he always has very interesting takes on things especially on screen drafts <laughs> he, he certainly <laughs> does <laughs> Well, like I said, folks, um, August is Ackerman month. That's right. Uh, Bill Ackerman is going to be taking over in the next few weeks, I would say, with two episodes, one on Steven Sayadian. I'm probably not saying that right, but uh, he's uh, it's gonna be a really interesting director that's only made a few films, but there's a lot to say. And one of them in particular is getting a special new edition Blu-ray. I believe it's Cafe Flesh. And it's kind of a tie-in to promote that uh, along with his guests who have um, a lot to say about that director. And he's also um, going to be recording soon an episode on the great Mia Hansen Love. Nice. So that's exciting. Yes, I've, I'm going to have to watch some more films from her for sure, but the ones I've seen I have liked as well. So you won't hear from me for a little while outside of the new movie review monologues that I do, which can be found over at directorsclubpodcast.com and you can send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and hey, why why not uh, follow me over on Letterboxd as well? It's a cool site. (laughs) Pretty good site. Pretty pretty good. Pretty good. The old L-box uh, nah, it doesn't quite work as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, all that and more will be linked in the show notes. And uh, thank you again, Mitchell, for joining me. What, what a blast. Thank you so much. I had a really great time. A very cool, fun conversation. Indeed. And I, I expected that from you, of course. <laughs> so uh, everybody stay safe, watch movies, be good to one another, because, hey, we're all we've got. There we go. <laughs>